Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 55. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. The war against the virus rages on around the world and most fiercely here at home in the U.S. And if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. That's the sound of thousands of people protesting in Lansing, Michigan. They called it Operation Gridlock. And they were protesting Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer's statewide stay-at-home order. They protested by jamming up the streets of Lansing, the state capital. They protested by blocking ambulances and gathering in large groups, screaming and yelling, standing next to each other in snow flurries without wearing face masks. That'll show her. It was part protest, part Trump rally, and part coronavirus cluster, and 100% stupid. They clearly didn't get the memo, or read the paper, or listen to the show. The message to all the people of Michigan, of the United States, of the entire world, is pretty clear now. That's the simple key to a brighter future for all of us. Don't stand so close to me or her or him or anybody. But these knuckleheads, they aren't hearing it. And Michigan currently has more than 27,000 cases, fourth most in the country, and nearly 1,800 deaths, third highest in the country. But these folks are mad at the governor for directing them to stay at home and stop the spread. Maybe they're mad that Michigan is not number one in the nation. But worry not, Operation Gridlockers. Michigan may not be number one, but America is. Yes, we are number one. Yes, America rules. We are beating every other country in the world. On the worst scoreboard in the world, the coronavirus cases and death scoreboard. 636,917 cases and 28,586 deaths. We now have almost six times the number of cases as Italy. And Donald Trump, here's what he tweeted. For the first time in history, there's a fully signed presidential disaster declaration for all 50 states. We are winning and will win the war on the invisible enemy. Winning. So much winning. So there's no sports in America now. No NBA, no baseball, no hockey, no nothing. So the entire country now tunes in to see the latest coronavirus numbers. It's like our new global scoreboard. The coronavirus pandemic passed 2 million confirmed infections and 130,000 deaths worldwide. The figures have roughly doubled in 13 days and continue to grow steadily. And what's President Mayhem doing? He's not attacking the virus. He's not rallying America to find a vaccine. He's not encouraging doctors and nurses to join the fight. No. President Mayhem is instead attacking one of our most critical allies in the fight against the coronavirus. The World Health Organization. Yes, really. Today I'm instructing my administration to halt funding of the World Health Organization while a review is conducted to assess the World Health Organization's role in severely mismanaging and covering up the spread of the corona 
virus. Everybody knows what's going on there. Yes, everyone knows what's going on there. The WHO is fighting for global health, as they always have. And Trump's gaslighting, as he always does. And instead of taking responsibility, he's trying to pin this on someone new, not named Trump. He's trying to yank funding from one of our single most effective and valued partners in the fight against COVID-19. And the fight against much more. Here's WHO Director General Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus. The United States of America has been a long-standing and generous friend to WHO. And we hope it will continue to be so. We regret the decision of the President of the United States to order a hold in funding to the World Health Organization. We support from the people and government of the United States, WHO works to improve the health of many of the world's poorest and most vulnerable people. WHO is not only fighting COVID-19, we're also working to address polio, measles, malaria, Ebola, HIV, tuberculosis, malnutrition, cancer, diabetes, mental health, and many other diseases and conditions. So Trump not only wants to ensure that COVID-19 continues to spread, in true President Mayhem fashion, he's magnifying his destruction by ensuring that malaria, AIDS, diabetes, and just about everything that kills people gets worse too. Now, Dr. Gabriesis is about 4,000 times smarter than Trump. He's a microbiologist and a PhD and an internationally recognized malaria researcher. He sounds like the doctor from the movies, the one who goes on TV and explains to the entire world that the aliens are coming. He's like a global Dr. Fauci from the future. COVID-19 does not discriminate between rich nations and poor, large nations and small. It does not discriminate between nationalities, ethnicities, or ideologies. Neither do we. This is a time for all of us to be united in our common struggle against a common threat, a dangerous enemy. When we're divided, the virus exploits the cracks between us. He gets it. This is a global threat. This is a world war. I wish he was our president. Unfortunately, he's not. He's also not infected with the disease that's continuing to rampage across America. The deadly, costly, infuriating, vexing disease. No, not coronavirus. That's facing the world. And the world is responding. Some countries better than others. But here, in the good old U.S. of A., We've got a unique, especially nasty strain of something much more deadly. The stupid. The stupid is continuing to spread, with particularly deadly outbreaks in places like Florida and South Dakota. But when I said it's nasty, I wasn't kidding. Listen to it take shape here. Go ahead, Mr. President. Thank you. Uh, today, 600,000 cases, 25,000 deaths. I know you want to blame the WHO, but I've spoken to hundreds of people across the country in the last few weeks who say they still can't get tested and that uh, they aren't social distancing because so they the governors, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Excuse me. Excuse me. I know, I know your question. You ready? 
The governors, the governors are supposed to do testing. It's up to the governors. Go ahead, please. Go ahead, please. Quiet. 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 Mr. President, they are following your lead. That they are not social. The governors are doing the testing. It's now not up, and it hasn't been up to the federal government. Go ahead. I told them when they put this guy here, it's nothing but trouble. He's a showboat. If you keep talking, I'll leave and you can have it out with the rest of these people. If you keep talking, I'm going to leave and you can have it out with them. Just a loud mouth. Go ahead. Man, I wish he would leave. We all do. He's calling a reporter a loud mouth. That's another manifestation of the disease. The stupid causes victims to lash out. It makes them irritable, irrational. Here, the patient blames others. First, China. Then, governors. Now, the WHO. President Mayhem blames everyone but himself and talks about problems. This is very complex. This is a very brilliant enemy. You know, it's a brilliant enemy. They develop drugs like the antibiotics. You see it? Antibiotics used to solve every problem. Now, one of the biggest problems the world has is the germ has gotten so brilliant that the antibiotic can't keep up with it. And they're constantly trying to come up with a new. People go to a hospital and they catch, they go for a heart operation, that's no problem, but they end up dying from, from problems. You know the problems I'm talking about. Yeah, we know the problems. The problems is the stupids. Yeah, the stupids, they're rampant. And you're the patient zero. You're the super spreader. You're the gigolo who doesn't wear condoms, politically and actually. He's stupid patient zero, and he's incredibly contagious, infecting Fox News, Congress, and a small number of governors who are particularly vulnerable. And as we discussed at length in the last episode, it even spread to the Navy. It landed on acting Secretary of the Navy Thomas Modley, who, after firing Captain Brett Crozier and lambasting the crew of an aircraft carrier, the USS Roosevelt, resigned in disgrace. But, oh, there's a bit more news there now, a bit of poetic justice. Former acting Secretary of the Navy Thomas Modley is in quarantine right now. He's no longer the acting Secretary of the Navy, but the Navy ain't letting him go just yet. The Navy's former top civilian is currently in quarantine following his ill-fated April 5th visit to the USS Roosevelt in Guam. Before he got to Guam at some point, Modley got badly infected with the stupid. Right after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis got it, who got it after Senator Rand Paul. And now, as I predicted, it's infecting someone new, a new leader who most folks hadn't even heard of until recently, but now gets to borrow that theme song that's been passed from one person who's excelled in the proliferation of stupid and callous to another. It's a new tradition on this show now. It's a badge of dishonor, a leadership dunce cap, a scarlet letter of stupid that we now pass from one failed leader to the next. Last week, it was Modley, and I told you it might soon be someone, someone in particular. Guess what? I can't write this shit, but I've become like the Tony Romo of predicting assholes. Tony Romo can see and predict plays in the NFL before they happen, and I can see and predict assholes in politics before they happen. Thanks to a rapid and intense bout with the stupid, South Dakota Governor Christy Nome is back in the news. 
the governor who refused to issue a stay-at-home order, the governor who instead issued a statewide day of prayer and proudly declared South Dakota is not New York City. Well, it turns out it might be. A South Dakota meatpacking plant just became the number one hotspot in America for coronavirus. The South Dakota Department of Health officials confirmed 80 new cases of Smithfield employees, in addition to a total of 126 cases connected to those Smithfield Foods employees. That brings the total number of cases connected to the plant in South Dakota to 644. And a South Dakota nonprofit has also announced the death of one of those Smithfield workers related to COVID-19. So this single plant in South Dakota has now surpassed the USS Theodore Roosevelt in the number of confirmed cases. And now it's number one. And Governor Christy Nome is now number one, the number one stupidest leader in America. And your prize for victory, Governor, you're the proud new owner of the title and this song that goes with it. I drive really slow in the ultra fast lane while people behind me are going And Governor Nome might keep the title, because despite pleas from the Sioux Falls mayor, who's also Republican, she's digging in. Over 160 South Dakota county and city leaders have signed a petition urging the governor to declare a statewide emergency due to a surge in coronavirus cases. But she refuses. And President Mayhem refuses too. He refuses to issue a national stay-at-home order. But despite his incompetence, America has mostly gotten the memo. Most Americans want a brighter future. And Operation Stay at Home America is almost fully activated. Almost all of America is now finally under some form of lockdown. But not all of it. So 97% of America is staying at home right now. And 3% of America has leadership that's trying to kill the rest of us, including South Dakota. And at least 3% of all American leaders are still infected with the stupid. And the stupid can be fatal. So 3% of America is riddled with the sickness. The sickness is stupid. Seven states are continuing to hold out. Arkansas, Iowa, Nebraska, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Wyoming. They still don't have statewide stay-at-home orders in place. I named all the governors in the last episode, all seven of them, the stupid seven, I'll call them. The seven governors who continue to put their people at risk and continue to put us all at risk. Our enemies are celebrating. ISIS is thrilled. North Korea is ecstatic. Iran is happy. Putin is elated. Thanks to these seven governors who refuse to support the future, who refuse to listen to the science, and refuse to shut it down. Since the war against the virus began, I brought you leaders who can help you navigate this new normal. Navy SEAL and leadership chaos expert Chris Fussell, Army Colonel Miles Caggins, Medal of Honor recipient Flo Groberg, Captain Paul Hazer, the amazing ER surgeon in Brooklyn, and superhero Jake Wood, CEO and founder of Team Rubicon. 
all fighters fighting the virus, fighting for you and for me and all the grandmas and grandpas and the rest of the world in this war against the virus. And in this episode, we've got a very different kind of leader, one who has also answered the call, but one that you're much more familiar with than anyone else on this show in a while. He's an important, inspiring, and now truly iconic American leader. Warriors in the fight against COVID-19 can come in many forms. And in this pod, we have one of our biggest guests yet. A leader who has himself taken many forms. And he's been an essential part of the quarantine experience for millions worldwide. A leader who's faced a virus before and is now helping the helpers in his community fight the virus and inspiring countless others. It's a guest who also gave the most enlightening and interesting favorite drink answer we've ever had. It's the great and powerful Jeffrey Wright. Jeffrey Wright is one of the finest actors of our time. He's also one of the most tenacious activists. He's a patriot. He's an organizer. He's a voice for the voiceless and a mind for the future. From Angels in America to Basquiat to Syriana to Casino Royale to The Hunger Games, to Boardwalk Empire, to maybe my favorite of all, Classical Baby, to, of course, Westworld. Jeffrey Wright has played Martin Luther King Jr. and Colin Powell. He's played artists and scientists. He's got a Golden Globe, an Emmy, and a Tony. And he's a driven supporter of causes, ranging from veterans with mental health injuries to minors in Sierra Leone. He's one of the most interesting people on the planet, and I've been honored to call him a friend. We met years ago, and I've been humbled to know him as his star continues to rise and his voice and power continue to grow. As the war against the coronavirus expands, Jeffrey Rice is a critical global voice for two prongs of it. His neighborhood in Brooklyn is being hammered by sickness and death. Sirens are wailing constantly outside his home. It's one of the hardest hit places on the planet. He's using his unique talents to rally his community to help itself and help others. While at the same time, the show he stars in is at the top of everyone's binge list worldwide during quarantine. Westworld is a global phenomenon, giving so many of us a welcome break from the virus, but also warnings about our weaknesses and the potential dystopian future. We've got a fascinating conversation coming up with one of the most notable faces on the planet, and you'll hear so many sides of Jeffrey Wright you've never heard before. His thoughts as a father his connection and deep understanding of viruses, stories of glory days as a college lacrosse star, and will even meet his pet turtles. When I say look for the helpers, they come in many forms, but few are more dynamic, more thoughtful, more powerful than Jeffrey Wright. He's also got a killer car story and an amazing insight into the world of whiskey. He might know more about whiskey than anyone who's ever been on this show. And later in the show, I'll give you information about how you can help support frontline business owners and first responders in New York and nationwide. This is another episode of Angry Americans that'll give you perspective and a bit of escape, but also, and always, a call to action, a way to help from your quarantine. I'll have some special thank yous and a few thoughts on an incredible Angry American who we lost recently to the virus, the great John Prine. We're all in this war together, more and more by the day. The virus took John Prine and is taking more and more by the day. But we're rallying together. 
thanks to neighbors like Jeffrey Wright, and in the memory of those we're losing like John Prine. They're both uniquely talented artists and truth-tellers who bring light, not heat. And like the rest of us, in South Dakota, in Maine, in Brooklyn, and all the way to Westworld, and all across the entire globe, wherever you are, from the Queen of England, to Chris Cuomo, to Jeffrey Wright, to John Prine, to you, and to me. We're all now Riders on the Storm. Riders on the Storm. Riders on the Storm. But before we get to Jeffrey, in this intense time, there's some news and issues that have me angry, have others angry, and should have everyone angry. And as the war continues to expand and exhaust, we're leading off again with our ongoing and intensifying war against the coronavirus. More than 137,000 people have now died worldwide from coronavirus. Over 28,000 Americans have died. U.S. coronavirus cases are now over 644,000 people. That's more than the population of the entire city of Las Vegas, or Baltimore, Maryland, or Milwaukee, Wisconsin. When I dropped the last episode of this podcast seven days ago, it was 14,800. So the number of dead Americans has roughly doubled just since our last episode. And the war against the virus has expanded everywhere now. And so has the destruction. But so has the unity and the strength. And here on a front line in New York, we hope, maybe, the casualties are finally slowing down. But not before we continue to lose our friends, our family, and our neighbors at a stunningly fast clip. Almost 11,000 people have died in New York alone. New York's per capita death toll from the virus now outstrips Italy, with its total number of deaths only slightly behind that of the UK. And the cheers continue in New York City at 7 p.m. each night for our first responders. And they're growing louder and more creative and expanding across the country. It's a release of the pain every night for millions and a chance to come together and be hopeful for the future. But any hopes for the rest of the school year are now officially gone. New York City public schools will remain closed for the rest of the academic year. Mayor Bill de Blasio made the announcement this week. And as New York goes on much of this, so will the rest of the country. So if you're a betting person, I wouldn't put your money on schools coming back this year, unless maybe you're in South Dakota. But it's going to be painful, especially for those of us trying to balance it all. And for our kids who miss things like socializing with other kids. I realized this week that my four-year-old hadn't played with another kid that wasn't his baby brother or me in about four weeks. That's surreal and painful. And it's been painful for so many of our friends and our neighbors. And our friend Wes Moore was on Morning Joe to highlight how some of the folks getting hit the hardest are also the folks who work the hardest in the hardest jobs. Let me give you one more question in this vein. It would seem that all the debate about when and how quickly to bring the country back is centered around the economy. It seems it should be centered around these most vulnerable communities now. Well, you know, many of the people who are, who are still involved in the economy right now, frankly, a lot of our frontline workers, a lot of our low-wage workers, mm -hmm. these are people who don't have the luxury to work from home anyway. 
Right. These are people who are going out, like Mike said, the ones who are doing the food delivery, the ones who who it's, it's not a life or death question for them. In many ways, it's a death or death question. I can either not work and make an economy or I can go out and expose myself to a deadly virus. And so we have communities that are no win situations at this point. And how we talk about the reentry of our economy, how we talk about what it means to rebuild our economy. We have to understand that to rebuild our economy, it means we have to put our, we have to put a core focus on creating a stable and a supportive environment for all those people who are truly helping to make our economy go in the first place and have always done so historically. Wes Moore is the CEO of Robinhood, an author and incredible activist. If you don't know him or you haven't heard his story, go back and check out Wes in episode 10. It's more timely than ever. So it's been painful for many people in so many places. So school's gone. And it looks like sports will be gone for the summer, too. Maybe longer. No live sports in Los Angeles until 2021 is the possibility. It looks like Los Angeles may hold off on allowing any big gatherings until 2021 because of the coronavirus threat. There was an internal L.A. Fire Department email that was obtained by the L.A. Times. And Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti raised the issue during his weekly briefing Monday with a group of high-level staff from several departments, including Fire Chief Ralph Terrazas. So we might not have live sports until 2021, and we won't have school at least till the fall, and we still don't have any testing, and lots of people continue to die. But we will get through this, and hopefully have some more perspective on the other side. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo continues to lead for the state, for the region, for the country, and for the globe. And he broke it down with his brother Chris, who continues to fight the virus himself, and as we learned this week, Chris's wife, Christina, has also tested positive. But Governor Andrew Cuomo gave us some perspective and thoughts on the future. What does the future look like uh, in your mind's eye? What are you looking forward to being able to do again? You know, uh, I think what, this is one of those situations in life that uh, shows us really what to be thankful for and gives us some perspective, right? And it's simpler than we tend to make it. Uh, what do I want? I want to be able to uh, go fishing with you and throw my cell phone in the ocean and uh, not worry about it. I want to be able to sit around the table uh, with mom and laugh and your kids and my kids and be able to hug them without worrying about social distancing. I would never want to hear about social distancing again. I don't want to get up at four o'clock in the morning and the first thing I have to go through uh, is understanding how many deaths we had the night before. Uh, I don't want to talk to any more families who lost uh, family members. I want the pain to stop. I want the fear to stop. I want the anxiety to stop. I want you to get out of your basement. I want Christina to be okay. I want those hospital workers to be able to go home and sleep a full night. Uh, just let's get back to normal. Let's get back to family. Let's get back to all those simple things that we took for granted uh, and we were wrong and now we miss. And when we get them back, maybe we'll cherish them uh, more than we ever have. That is beautiful. I share your dream. You get a big amen. You know, I was reading the other day, you quoted uh, FDR beautifully a short while back, and I was reading some of his stuff last night about the four freedoms that came up, uh, you know, running into World War II. And I'll tell you, freedom from fear and freedom from want, 
Boy, do those ring true in a way that they never did before now. Governor Cuomo, my big brother, Andrew, thank you. I love you and I appreciate you. That's a hope that we will cherish them more than we ever have. That's a future we can look forward to, but we're not there yet. We got a long way to go. And a key to getting to that future state is the strong and precise engagement of all of our resources. And that means in particular, the two pillars of the Department of Defense and the Department of Veterans Affairs. They can be our cavalry or they can be our house of cards. They can come in and save the day or they can crumble beneath us when we need them the most because our war is continuing to expand. There's two kinds of people in the world right now. The people who get the right war and the people who don't. If you're listening, you're the former. If not, you will be by the end of this podcast. But we're at war. And it's a war that the VA is losing, which could mean catastrophe, especially for our greatest generation, millions of World War II veterans who continue to be lost by the hour. But it could also be a catastrophe for all Americans. The VA is our national health care backstop, and that backstop is showing holes more and more by the day. So the VA and DOD can be the cavalry, or they can be a disaster. And I've been sounding the alarm for the last month or more of episodes, and on CNN, and this week on MSNBC with Rachel Maddow. And I post updates daily on Twitter. But the coronavirus is now in VA facilities nationwide. It's gotten into the bloodstream of the entire national healthcare system, the largest healthcare system in America, and especially into our nursing homes. I think I might have It's gotten into our bloodstream, and it's getting worse. There's coronavirus nationwide, and problems for VA nationwide, and they are starting to rupture. Here's the top line. Deaths at the Department of Veterans Affairs have now increased five times since April 1st. Just since April 1st, they're up 5x. 272 veterans are now reported dead of coronavirus. Most were in their 80s and 90s, but now we're seeing them in their 50s and 60s and even younger. Now get this. Only 39,500 tests have been done nationwide by the Department of Veterans Affairs, nationally, total. And it's been a pathetic increase of only about 2,100 tests per day. New York tests 26,000 in a day. And as I shared with Matt over the other night, this is the single most concerning part of the daily VA reporting. They've only done 39,000 tests from the beginning of all this. And the more they test, the more they find. 4,400 VA patients have now tested positive. Detroit, Denver, Indianapolis, West Haven, Connecticut, Northport, New York, Montrose, New York, Washington, D.C., they've all hit 100 cases. Brooklyn is now at almost 300. The Bronx is over 300. And New Orleans has 430, the highest numbers in the country. And meanwhile, state veterans' nursing homes continue to get pounded. More than 16 states are now reporting outbreaks. And there are likely many more happening or coming. As I feared and predicted, there could be more Holyoke's. Holyoke, you may remember, is where the soldier's home was. 
And now the total dead there is 44. It just keeps going up. So 44 veterans have died in one veteran's home in Holyoke, Massachusetts. But I feared and predicted there could be more Holyokes. Now there's Paramus, New Jersey. A Paramus veteran's home is in total crisis mode with 37 people dead in two weeks and the National Guard has been deployed. An outbreak of the disease at the New Jersey veteran's home in Paramus killed at least 10 residents and contributed to the deaths of some 27 in the last two weeks. Six residents have been hospitalized, 70 are ill, and dozens of staff have been diagnosed or waiting results. But it's not just Paramus, New Jersey. There's also seven veterans dead in another facility in Stony Brook, New York. Each with pre-existing medical conditions, seven have died. We knew veterans were at unique risk, and now they're being devastated nationwide. In Richmond, Virginia, eight employees and 39 patients at a McGuire VA hospital in Richmond have tested positive. In West Palm Beach, Florida, four VA medical center employees and 14 patients have tested positive. And now in Rowan County, North Carolina, a second veteran who tested positive has died. And in Scarborough, Maine, 32 cases have been recorded at a 125-bed facility, with 26 residents and six staff members testing positive, and one resident has died. Now, these are just the ones we know. Nursing homes have been a brutal front line in our war against the virus. We need a national plan and a national leader for nursing homes specifically, and for veteran nursing homes. And VA Secretary Wilkie has been AWOL. We need someone like General Simonite, who runs the Army Corps of Engineers. And we need maximum pressure on Trump and Congress to act now. And for anyone who ignorantly argues that Secretary Wilkie can do nothing for Holyoke and other state-run veterans' homes where thousands of veterans could die because the VA is a federal organization, that's bullshit. And props to Senator John Tester from Montana for pushing VA on it. He notes that in the new CARES Act, the VA can send personal protective equipment down to these state veterans' homes. In addition to allowing VA to share life-saving PPE to protect veterans and employees of state-run homes, the bill also directs VA to provide PPE to home health workers who are directly employed by VA and contracted by VA employees. These are the people who go into the homes of elderly and disabled people to provide vital care. But there's a lot that Wilkie can do. There's a lot that Trump can do if they get involved, but they're not. They're totally AWOL. And if you're not angry about this, you're not paying attention. Leo De Palma survived World War II and guarded infamous Nazis, but COVID-19 brought him down. Leo De Palma died at 93 because of the virus. When he wasn't even 20, snipers' bullets were zipping by his head in Germany. He stood guard at Nuremberg, hearing the Nazi atrocities. But there won't be a funeral for him. And this is what his daughter had to say. The hardest part of all this is that there's no funeral. There's no services. We can't be graveside. They can't embalm. He's got to go in the ground soon, and that's that. Leo was a quiet hero of the greatest generation. Please remember him, and so many others, that are dying alone and being buried in isolation. Please, learn their names, remember them, and fight for them, because they didn't have anyone with them when they died, and they did not get proper military honors when they were buried. And that should make everyone angry. But it's not just VA patients. 
VA employees have also died. 13 of them have died that we know of. And 1,500 VA employees have reportedly tested positive, but we can't really trust the VA numbers at all. Leo Shane over at the Military Times did some excellent reporting and got internal memos that call into question the VA's numbers. You can't trust their numbers. That's the bottom line. And VA continues to say there's plenty of PPE for VA staff, even though VA staff nationwide and VA's own internal memos say otherwise. There was a blockbuster story in the Wall Street Journal this weekend from Ben Kessling, who's also Marine, that revealed that VA hospitals will give masks only to some employees, and they're struggling to get more N95 respirators, and the fear is palpable. So VA says everything's great, employees and the facts and their own memos say otherwise. And this is as more and more is needed from the VA. As a part of the agency's so-called fourth mission, the Department of Veterans Affairs is now caring for 135 non-veterans in New York, New Jersey, Michigan, and New Mexico. So that's where the overflow is supposed to go. If your hospital can't treat you, you may end up at a VA. So this is why VA's COVID-19 problems or your COVID-19 problems, no matter who you are. Things that make you go, hmm. And in things that make you go, hmm, the VA is now partnering with Facebook to give out 7,400 video calling devices called portals. Now, these things normally retail for about 129 bucks. But here's the catch. They require a Facebook account to work. Hmm. We're going to have to call Yale Eisenstadt, our guest from episode 43, to find out more. You may remember she was a CIA operator who went on to work at Facebook before leaving because of her concerns about their integrity. Go back to episode 43 if you want to find out why Facebook getting all your information might be a problem. It'll probably boil your blood, and this will also boil your blood. Sticking on the issue of what's happening in Veterans Affairs, 2 million veterans could miss out on the $1,200 coronavirus relief checks. 2 million of them, because Congress failed to plan for the fact that their income is primarily made up of untaxed benefits, like disability and survivor benefits or pensions. So if you're getting your relief check via your tax returns, what do you do for those people who don't file tax returns because their survivor benefits are not taxed? So 2 million veterans could miss out. And per usual, despite all this, VA Secretary Robert Wilkie is MIA. No interviews of the real media, no daily press briefings, no briefings of any kind, but he did go on another far-right radio show for a softball love fest with a guy named Todd Starnes, who broadcasts from, of all places, Liberty University and calls himself America's conservative blowtorch. But that's the only sign of Wilkie we've had. He continues to be MIA. And if you missed it, Rachel Maddow had me on this week for a segment on where is Wilkie, that's the hashtag we've been using, and all the rest of this. And if you missed the previous episodes of all this VA and Department of Defense Madness, go back and download all our recent episodes of Angry Americans. We go a lot deeper, and it's not broadcast from a university that helps spread COVID-19. Look, if led well and effectively utilized, VA and DOD can be the cavalry for America in our war against the coronavirus. They can help shape our future. But right now, they're failing. And the Department of Defense is having its problems pile up, too. And the pressure is mounting. I told you, former Navy Acting Secretary Thomas Modley is in quarantine. He's no longer Acting Secretary of the Navy, but the Navy's still got their claws in him. Meanwhile, 
85% of the USS Theodore Roosevelt's crew has now been evacuated because of the COVID-19 outbreak. Four more sailors have been admitted to the hospital in Guam, and one has died. This is what Captain Crozier warned us about. Nearly 600 sailors on board have now tested positive. If you want to do something to support that sailor lost, send donations or social media love to TAPS, the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. I've told you about them before, but they'll be there for the family of this sailor and any others to come. Because the Department of Defense is now reporting increases in the number of COVID-19 deaths and cases. And in one day this week, the number of deaths went up to 13. That went from 8 to 13 in one day, the single highest one-day increase since the department started tracking the data back in March. So they went from 8 to 13 in one day. And if you're in the press corps at the White House, maybe you could ask President Mayhem about this instead of Tiger King. And the Army says that now about 25,000 retired soldiers have responded to the call for medical personnel. They're looking for volunteers from numerous backgrounds, but retired and recently separated medical professionals are preferred. The Army won't mobilize veterans currently in medical jobs, but 25,000 have stepped up to serve in the fight. But meanwhile, as our entire military struggles to deal with COVID-19 and our civilian population continues to get hammered, in the past 24 hours, there have been a number of incidents that you probably haven't heard about. Just in the last 24 hours, Russia test-fired an anti-satellite missile. And then a Russian jet buzzed a U.S. spy plane in the Mediterranean. Then Iranian gunboats harassed some U.S. warships in the Persian Gulf. North Korea fired some cruise missiles into the sea. And China may have conducted a nuclear test. All of this happened just in the last 24 hours. Hashtag our enemies are celebrating. But don't worry, everybody. Department of Defense leadership is clearly on the same page. Check out this clip from Secretary of Defense Esper and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Milley. What don't you guys understand? If you need to, suspend haircuts, right? Uh, For whatever period of time. Uh, So that's the type of guidance we need to make. Otherwise, don't don't take that as guidance yet. Don't take that as guidance yet. A lot of ways to do haircuts. Uh, Watch that hair. So China's setting off nukes. North Korea's firing missiles, the Russians are buzzing our planes, and these two can't even agree on haircuts. One of the most underreported COVID-19 stories is how underprepared and discompobulated Secretary of Defense Esper and the entire Pentagon leadership has been from the beginning. From the USS Roosevelt, to the USNS Comfort, to the haircuts. We've covered it at length here on this podcast, but watch this space. And we covered it in the past, but we continue to lose 9-11 first responders. Firefighters and cops, especially in New York, but in other places too. And at the VA and DOD, the future is uncertain. But the future is looking more and more clear in another key area, the race for president. And there's one big headline. The future is here. The tribes are uniting. I was skeptical about their ability and willingness to do it, but I didn't expect a pandemic. And it served as kind of a forcing function. It's finally forced the Democrats to stop eating their own and get together. And if Joe Biden is their Jon Snow, the dragons are finally coming together to support Jon Snow. The dragons are finally at Jon Snow's disposal. And this week, Bernie Sanders finally endorsed Joe Biden. Today, I am asking all Americans, I'm asking every Democrat, I'm asking every independent, I'm asking a lot of Republicans to come together in this campaign to support your candidacy, which I endorse, to make certain that we defeat 
somebody who I believe, and I'm speaking just for myself now, uh, is the most dangerous president in the modern history of this country. And Sanders finally said something I really agree with. Trump is the most dangerous president in modern history, maybe in our entire history. I love how Biden sounded surprised in that clip. Maybe he actually was. On some level, I was. But the dragons continue to come online for Biden. And the biggest dragon of them all, the most powerful piece on the chessboard, Barack Obama finally endorsed Joe Biden. If there's one thing we've learned as a country from moments of great crisis, it's that the spirit of looking out for one another can't be restricted to our homes or our workplaces or our neighborhoods or our houses of worship. It also has to be reflected in our national government. The kind of leadership that's guided by knowledge and experience, honesty and humility, empathy and grace. That kind of leadership doesn't just belong in our state capitals and mayor's offices. It belongs in the White House. And that's why I'm so proud to endorse Joe Biden for president of the United States. It's nice to hear him again, isn't it? It's like back to the future. But it's great to hear Obama's voice again. It's great to hear his calm. And I think no matter what political party you come from or no party at all, if you're an independent like me, you like hearing Obama's voice and hearing his perspective in times like this. He can give people strength and calm and support during the time of this pandemic. But he's another dragon that's coming online. And there was one more that came out to endorse Biden this week, Elizabeth Warren. Joe Biden has spent nearly his entire life in public service. He knows that a government run with integrity, competence, and heart will save lives and save livelihoods. And we can't afford to let Donald Trump continue to endanger the lives and livelihoods of every American. And that's why I'm proud to endorse Joe Biden as president of the United States. So everyone endorses Biden. I told you all about this back in the summer when a lot of folks said Biden wasn't going to make it through. I felt certain that it was time for the Democrats to just buckle down and rally around him. As long as he didn't have a health issue or die, Joe Biden was the presumptive nominee. He lasted through it all. And now he's the guy. And Trump is freaking out. He's not Marion Williamson, but he can see the future. And right now it ain't looking so good for his second term. But we're not there yet, people. Still lots of time to go. So keep your quarantine popcorn ready. And as Joe Biden seeks to replace the disaster of our president, the carnage of war and the coronavirus rages on. But many continue to step up to face the fear, to fight the pain, and to prevent tragedies and personal disasters all across the country. Helpers who are fighting for the future. And look for the helpers. That's the theme of this show, especially now. We're in the greatest time we'll ever see for our helpers and for heroes. Helpers are what this country was founded on. Helpers are the people you've heard on this show or met through this show online or at our events. Helpers are right now in the hospital ERs, fighting to save lives around the globe. We continue to push through the quarantine and the social distancing and the masks and the endless Zoom and FaceTime connections we wish were real. One day in the future, they will be again. And the helpers will support us if we get the coronavirus. The helpers will be there for us and the ones we love. And the helpers will guide us through to our BC Day, our victory over coronavirus day. One day, we'll have outdoor concerts again. One day, we'll have family barbecues again. One day, we'll all go to Little League games again. 
One day, we'll spend Easter and Passover and birthdays and funerals together again. And one day, we'll be able to be there after the babies are born. That day will come because of helpers like Jeffrey Wright. Jeffrey Wright is wise, talented, crazy smart, incredibly cool, and even better in real life than you hope he'd be. He's humble, so humble. And at the same time, he takes no shit. He fights, he pushes, he drives forward, he cares. And he's answered the call to serve and lead again and again. When Jeffrey was in college at Amherst, he played lacrosse, and he played a position called attack. Attack is maybe the best-named position in all of sports. It's a position that scores the most, and it requires the most skill. It's a player who's in the spotlight, but because he or she has the chops, the speed, the skills. Jeffrey Wright is an attack in all that he does, whether it's a part in a Batman movie, a nonprofit he supports, or a friend he knows. He's all in. He's attacking our country's challenges and its problems, and he's shaping what our country was, what it is, and what it will be in the future. And in this episode, we're bringing the four eyes to press the attack against the virus, the attack against the stupid, the attack against Trump, for New York, for America, and for the world, and toward the future. The future can be bright, even when it's distant, and even when it feels dark. No more will my green seagull turn a deeper blue. I could not foresee this thing happening to you. It's a maze of integrity. It's a door of information. It's a new world of inspiration and a future of impact. We're deep in the fight right now, but there's a brighter, smarter, kinder, better future out there. And after we defeat the virus, we'll build it together with support and inspiration from Jeffrey Wright and other leaders that are willing to answer the call and press the attack. And right now, for Jeffrey, for New York, for America, and for the work, Brooklyn is the battleground. It's a place where the hospitals are busting at the seams. And it's also a place where people hang out the windows every night at 7 p.m. to cheer each other. Brooklyn, New York is where Jeffrey was when I spoke to him. Brooklyn is a place that defines America's past and will also shape America's future. Welcome to Brooklyn. Welcome to the past. Welcome to the future. And welcome to Angry Americans, episode 55. around the country, around the globe. We have a very, very special guest joining us today on this episode. Somebody I've been so eager to talk to for a long time, a man I admire, a man who inspires me, and a man who is uh, very much in many different ways a man of the moment, coming to us live from Brooklyn, New York, one of the epicenters of the fight on the coronavirus, the great and powerful Jeffrey Wright. Well, thanks, Paul, for having me. You're, you're, you're easy to impress. <laughs> well, I really am so grateful that you're making time. Number one, because you're pretty deep in the fight. But number two, because you're a, you're a cool guy. You're a generous guy. You've been very supportive of me over the years. You're supportive of so many people in so many different areas, you know, uh, high profile and, and low profile. 
But first of all, just how are you doing, man? You're in Brooklyn with your family. Can you give us kind of a sense of, of how you're doing, how your family's doing and what it's like where you are, you know, really deep in, 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 in a battleground for the fight against the coronavirus? Yeah, we, we like, uh, like most people here in New York, are laying low and maintaining as well as we can. Uh, I'm in Brooklyn, in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. I can look out this window and see Brooklyn Hospital uh, uh, just across the way there. And uh, that is a hot spot for this as well. And so trying to be supportive of that. But we are just uh, maintaining. I have my 90-year-old aunt who is living with me now. My mom passed away last fall. Uh, I was raised by two uh, forceful women, and uh, and they lived together uh, until the time of my mom's passing down in D.C. So she, my aunt, who's a former nurse, uh, was a nurse at D.C. General Hospital in Washington, which was now is now defunct, formerly a federally funded facility and a safety net facility. She was there for thirty. Uh, five years or something. Uh, and so anyway, she's living with us now. So most uh, critical for us is is making sure she's okay, giving her a wide circle, uh, sitting on the opposite end of the table from her uh, at uh, for meals and, uh, and just, uh, you know, just keeping her safe. So we're doing well, uh, as well as can be expected. I am fortunate in that I, you know, reasonably sure I can make it through this thing, you know, without too much of a financial uh, 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 undoing. Uh, I have a job waiting for me. I was in the middle of filming Batman <laughs> in <laughs> London uh, when uh, when I headed back this way. So, you know, I'm, I feel relatively secure in that. Uh, again, I'm fortunate, but, you know, trying to stay safe, keeping our, uh, uh, you know, our health at the, at the foremost of our, of our thinking. So I want to dig into a number of elements of this, of this, Jeffrey, but um, just so we can kind of explain to folks how we got to know each other. I don't know if you know this, but I think you, you started to break out when I was at Amherst in, in the late 90s. I think it was like mm. 93, 94. I got to Amherst in 94 and then graduated in mm. 98. And I felt like your rise mm. coming out. And I don't know when Basquiat came out, but you were like in the news. Basquiat came out around that time. I yeah. So you were in the newsletters. You were like a guy from our college that we were all rooting for. Who was doing, who was doing weird stuff that nobody else was really doing. Yeah. But you were, you know, you were a guy that, you know, I think it's a, such a small school. It's like 1,600 students there. And the, the alumni, I think, is pretty well connected. But that's how I first knew of you, was just watching your rise. And, uh, you know, you had the Angels in America and Basquiat. And I was always rooting for anybody who was from Amherst. And then fast forward years later, we connected, uh, I think initially through my work at, at IAVA. And you've been yes. so amazing for so many different causes. I don't know if folks know you've done, you know, supportive projects for veterans. You've been incredibly involved politically on Twitter. But um, getting to know you has been a real privilege. And I just want folks to know that you're a very generous guy. And you also... I admire how much you're not afraid to throw a punch. You're mixing it up. So I want to maybe start by asking you, how is it being in, you know, the entertainment space and the way you are? Um, and, you know, maybe 10 years ago, actors, artists would have been reluctant to get in the mix. You're, you're out there, man. You're throwing punches every day. You're, you know, you're calling people out. You're, you're, you're I think, really forcefully and effectively criticizing the president. Um, what, what's that like for you and how do you view your role in the landscape before the Corona stuff happened, you were, I think, an important voice for America. But how do you view your role now and, and, and the ability to make an impact for you as an individual? 
Well, yeah, I guess, you know, Twitter is what it is. It's a, uh, you know, it's a, a, a great tool. It's also a, cess, a cesspool, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm in there, you know, down in the septic mess, you know, but uh, um, I grew up in Washington, D.C. My mom was a lawyer for the U.S. government for customs for 30 some odd years. You know, everybody in Washington, you know, when you're born in Washington, Doctor smacks you on your ass and asks and asks you what your political affiliation is. That's the way it goes, you know. Uh, of course, we're DC. Most of us tend to be left leaning, but you know that's the routine. Um, and then I I went to Amherst a little before you were there. I was a political science major before I started acting. I didn't start acting until I was a junior, late my junior year. Uh, you know, I took courses with, uh, you know, with some great political thinkers, some of whom are still there, Austin Sarrett, uh, uh, Paul Kateb, Henry Steele Commager, one of the foremost constitutional historians in the history of our country, was one of my professors. You know, he gave, gave me great insight one day. I'll never forget it. He said, hey, don't speak with your hands. <laughs> so that was, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, gems like that, uh, you know, were formed part of my education. But, um, it, you know, so listen, that's who I am. I've always been uh, just, you know, by nature of my birth and by and my upbringing, interested and involved in uh, understanding what uh, the political sphere uh, is that's happening around me. While at Amherst, uh, you know, we're students looking for a cause and, uh, sorry, the turtles are over there rebelling, but, uh, <laughs> while at Amherst, you know, we students were looking for a cause and our, and our big, uh, push and effective push was around divestment, uh, of the school's endowment from, uh, businesses involved in, uh, in, in a part of doing business or doing, uh, associated with apartheid South Africa. So it's always been, you know, uh, an interest from me for, for me when I started acting, what I discovered was the, the stories that I was most drawn to were stories that, that had a relevance to our politics, to our country, to issues. It just, those are the things that, that compelled me when I read them. So the first film that I did, for example, was a miniseries called Separate But Equal, um, uh, in which Sidney Poitier played Thurgood Marshall. Uh, it was Burt Lancaster's last Film. He played uh, the counsel that argued opposite uh, 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 Marshall. I forget his name. It'll come to me. Um, and but I got the role, or at least I got invited to uh, to uh, to audition because I had a political science degree. So yeah, I get that guy in here, you know. So um, and then Angels America, which is really kind of the epicenter of my artistic life, and in many ways, you know, reshaped me as a human being. Uh, was a piece infused with urgent uh, uh, political concern, with moral outrage, uh, uh, but done with meticulous artistic beauty and craftsmanship and the architecture of the, of mm. the storytelling. It's just, you know, it's just, it's just singular. So that, early on in my career, convinced me even more <laughs> that it was possible or even necessary to kind of infuse these things into my creative life. And so I was spoiled early and, uh, and, and I've tried when I can to, 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 to be, you know, kind of unabashedly political in my, in my, uh, in my creative expression when I can. I think you know, I, I've been great. apologizing for it, bro. 
No, I'm glad you don't. I mean, I, I've been grateful for it, and it's been an inspiration to me and, and others, I think, uh, who are activists and, and who are advocates um, to know, you know, you're out there, uh, you know, fighting the good fight and, and supporting so many others who do. I got Well, I hope, I'm, I hope I'm relatively informed, you know. You are. I, you, I, think, I think that's the other part. That, you know, I don't want to say that. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to tangle with you on Twitter or on the debate stage. I mean, you know, you, you, you're, you're, you're effective and, uh, and, you know, you have incredible reach now, right? Your reach continues to grow with Westworld and now with Batman and with the Bond films and everything else. But I want to take a, take a couple steps back. Number one, I can't let the turtles go. Like, what the hell is going yeah. on with the turtles in your room? I can't see it. It's off screen. If folks are listening, they can tune into the video later and see the really cool wall of stuff behind you. Uh, that I think includes, <laughs> I think I can see your Tony on the wall over one shoulder. Ah, uh, uh, I suppose. I saw was it a Golden Globe or another award behind you in the back? Yeah, it, it's yeah. Well, that that it won't fit up on the top. I try to at least stuff it up on the top somewhere, you know, so that yeah, that one won't fit. Yeah, that's, and noisy tur noisy turtles. So what? Are, noisy, what are well, they're they're less no noisy now because I turned off their filter in their basking uh, area. Uh, maybe I'll show them to you later. And now they're like, you know, one of the dude, the dude is chewing on the water spout and all kinds of stuff going on. But those are my guys, man. And uh, it, well, there's um, a male and a female, uh, two red-eared sliders that came home with my kids and their mom, my ex-wife Carmen at the time, from Canal Street, like in a brown paper bag or something. They had these two like quarter-sized turtles uh, that are now uh, plate-sized um, and uh, and as, as a part of the separation, the turtles came with me. So, you know, this, uh, I tend to look after them. And, but that's, like my... real, that's like the real, like, Ninja Turtle story, basically. Like a teenage <laughs> Ninja Turtle story. What are the, what, I can't let you get away without telling us the names. What are the names of the turtles? The, the, the male is, uh, well, the female is Mouse. And the male is Nancy Nippleton, of course. <laughs> of course. Of My course. daughter named them at that time. We didn't realize which was which, which, which was which gender. So <laughs> there they are. This is the beauty of, of, of uh, you know, coronavirus media, where we can actually be in your home hearing about your turtles. We hear the alerts coming in that, you know, are probably your family yeah. members saying, where the hell are you? But um, <laughs> let me stay on, you know, a piece that I ask of everybody, Jeffrey, every guest we have is an iconic, important, and inspiring American. You hit all three, but you're a man of great taste, of great experience, of great wisdom. What is your drink of choice? We can't have a drink in person today, but what is your, your drink of choice, your adult beverage of choice? That, that, that's, that's an easy one. Uh, it's going to be self, somewhat self-serving uh, because uh, uh, I'm also an investor in this, uh, in this company, this brand, Uncle Nearest. Uh, premium Tennessee whiskey. It is the most awarded uh, Tennessee whiskey of the last three years. It's a new, relatively new bottle, one of the fastest, if not the fastest growing independent label in the business. And it's, um, it is a bottle that is named in honor of a man named Nearest Green. And not only is it a fantastic, fantastic uh, tasting whiskey, it is far and away the best story in whiskey. Nearest Green was the man who, when enslaved and working on a farm in Lynchburg, Tennessee, took on a young boy and taught him to, to, to make whiskey because he was managing a, a, a whiskey operation on a farm there. This young boy uh, uh, 
came to work with with Nearest when he was 13. Nearest mentored him, taught him everything he knew about making whiskey. Uh, that young boy's name was Jack Daniel. And, uh, and Nearest Green was the man who mastered the process that differentiates Tennessee whiskey from bourbon. It's a, it's a charcoal mellowing process. Uh, which is known as the Lincoln County process, Lincoln County, Tennessee, nearest green, uh, uh, a man who, uh, whose services uh, were purchased, who was rented from uh, a company called Landis, the Landis Group or something like that, uh, in Tennessee, was brought to this farm as a slave uh, to man the whiskey operations and taught Jack Daniel everything he knew. Jack Daniel ended up buying the whiskey operation from this farmer, from this preacher farmer named Dan Call after the Civil War. And he moved his, uh, his operation up the road a little bit where the Jack Daniel Distillery sits now. And Nathan Nearest Green was his first master distiller. And so the, uh, this bottle Long story how, how, it, how it came to pass. There was an article in the New York Times, uh, I think in 2016, um, uh, Brown Foreman, the company that owns Jack Daniel, was starting to tell the real history, as opposed to the story that, oh, Jack Daniel learned to make whiskey from this preacher, Dan Call, this you know, white preacher farmer, and the rest is history. No, <laughs> that wasn't the story at all. And so I read this article about uh, Nathan Nearest Green and the actual history. And likewise, a woman named Fawn Weaver, who was in Singapore at the time, read the article. I got fired up about it. I like, you know, I, I clipped this picture out, this amazing set of pictures there. I would tell every bartender that I came across about this story. It was one or two, you know, over the course of a year that I would come across bartenders, that is. Uh, anyway, I just fell in love with this story and she did as well, but she got so fired up and so angry <laughs> that a few weeks later, she headed to Lynchburg, Tennessee to start to research. She researched so deeply that she knew more about the history of Jack Daniel than the company itself. Uh, she, in fact, she, she interviewed the biographer of the son of the biographer of Jack Daniel. And at the end of the interview, she said, oh, by the way, who owns the rights to this book? She said, oh, I think, you know, Jack Daniel's company owns it, you know. So she went and discovered they, in fact, did not. So she purchased the rights to Jack Daniel's biography. So if you go to uh, the, gift, uh, the gift shop, Jack Daniel's Distillery, and you buy his biography, you're buying it now from our company. She set up this company uh, after doing all of this research, created this bottle. The recipe came from a descendant of Jack Daniels by uh, marriage. Our first master or, or whiskey operations master is a woman named Sherry Moore, who's descendant of Jack Daniels by marriage. Uh, there are uh, uh, members of both families, the Green family and the Jack and Jack Daniels family that have come together. Uh, uh, to put this company together. There's some proceeds from the, uh, from the sales that go to a scholarship fund for descendant of Jack, uh, rather of Nearest Green, because some of these folks were still working as common laborers at the, at the Jack Daniels distillery, even though it was their ancestor who mastered the product that uh, has become this iconic brand, a multi-billion dollar global brand. And uh, so, um, so I owe my, I reached out to Fawn 
I owe my relationship, my investment into her. I reached out to her. I said, I love this story. When I found out that this bottle had come into being, I said, I, I, you know, I'd love to help you tell this story. And if you need a couple of bucks more, I'll throw, I'll do that too. Cause I think you, you know, you, you, you really got something going here. And so uncle nearest, uh, you know, uh, get a little taste of that and a little taste of that history too. That and is- right now we can all, we can all use a little uncle nearest. <laughs> oh man. You know, it's, I don't think, I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't think spirit sales are suffering right now. As no, long as you can get, get them online. Up. They're up, I, I think, hundreds of percentage points. But I, I think that, that is, Jeffrey, that is the most fascinating and, and uh, enlightening answer we've ever had to that question in the history of this show. And I the knew... Spirits, was, the spirits hit me, man. Oh. You can go to UncleNearest.com uh, to order it. And you can also see a couple of short films that we did. One that we shot on the original farm where old number seven still was situated. It's un- and, and, and there's a visiting visitor center too. Uh, we were in the process of building out the entire um, operation because we were farming out the distillation uh, and bottling. And now that's all uh, going to be in-house. But if you go, it's such a beautiful par- uh, piece of the uh, part of the country. And the farm, which uh, Fawn uh, bought as well, where this... Uh, original still was situated is gorgeous and you can see the stream uh, uh, whose water uh, was used to make the whiskey there are still old rusted pipes from the original still running out and just across from that stream are the rock stone foundations of some of the old structures that were there slave houses many of them it's an encapsulation of the american story in such an incredible way uh, if you go visit, it's really, it's really, uh, it's really very moving. Um, but Jack Daniel, the company, Jack Daniel's the company, Brown Foreman, didn't even know that that's where old number seven was situated, this original farm. So Fawn bought that too. She bought the farm in the best way. Wow. Now, the thing, the, 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 the thing is um, uh, uh, about the wonderful little detail of the story, <clears throat> old number seven on the bottle, right? Yep. Old number seven refers to, uh, she thinks, according to her research, the number of the still where the whiskey was made. But they, re- they, they redrew the, uh, the district lines and they renumbered all of the stills. And so what, what had been the number seven still, Jack Daniels and Nathan, Nathan Green still, became number 16, but everybody wanted the whiskey from old number seven. So that's where that came from on the bottle, on that square wow. bottle. Yeah, it's cool stuff. Thank you for sharing that. This is this, you're, you're this, welcome. This is a theme of the show. You may not know this, but we end each show with the presentation of an American whiskey. And we talk a lot about whiskey. We've talked a lot about bourbon. We've talked a lot about all of it. So folks who are listening are going are gonna to drink that up. They're going to love that story. And I think uh, you, you, if, if there's another pandemic, that sounds like the place that we need to be. Uh, you know, to, to yeah, hide yeah. Out for a yeah, while. Yeah, hold up right there. Yeah, yeah, man. But that's an incredible, and it also it, it shows me too all the different layers of how you're so involved in the history and the activism and the business and the storytelling of this country. It's it's one of the reasons why I was so excited to have you on this show. But I want to ask you to go back into the way way back machine, back into DC or wherever it was, and tell us a, an answer to a question I ask of all our guests as well which is Jeffrey Wright, what was your first car? 
my first car was, I believe I was a sophomore in college. Uh, I think it was the summer of my sophomore year. I had, I, I worked in DC at, uh, for the Washington gas company, summer gig, best gig I ever had in my life, man. I was toting a jackhammer. I was, you know, I was shoveling holes all damn day, you know, where these other guys would go down and they would fix these big gas mains. You know, I was a member of the International Union of Gas Workers. I was making more money than I ever made in my life. You know, uh, uh, triple time on Sundays, you know, 21 hour, we were, we, were, we were down there doing it. And I was a brick at the end of the summer. And I had a, I had a, I had a good amount of cash in my pocket. And so I went on, went in Washington Post and I found a, a, a used 1972 BMW 2002 that I think I bought for like 1200 bucks. And I had an uncle, the mom's sister, uh, down in Tidewater, Virginia, who was, a, who was a body and fender man. And he was masterful. He, that guy, they called him the resurrector. He would just, you know, <laughs> uh, he, could, he could just bring, a, bring a, a car back from the dead, man. And so I, I drove down there and he, uh, and he uh, beautiful, beautiful uh, uh, little, little ride. And I had been, you know, I'd adored these cars. I'd seen them all, you know. So he, uh, he tightened it up. I think that was like 1980, 80, was that 84, 85? Uh, so it was a 12 year old, you know, car at that, at that time. But he, he, you know, he, he put a, he just put a job on that thing, man. So I drove back up to Amherst. Um, uh, and about two months after I got to Amherst that fall, <laughs> damn near total. <laughs> how, did, how did you near total it? And I got to ask you too, I said, well, what color is this car? Cause I mean, it was like kind of an, it was a little, it was a, it was a blue. It was a little bit of an electric blue, man. You know, the sunroof. I had a stereo that I'd popped into it. And I was tweaking the carburetor one day outside our, uh, our house where we lived. Uh, uh, and, uh, and one of my friends came out and I said, uh, I said, Russell, I said, let's go for a ride, man. He said, because I was, you know, I, was, I had to do a little carburetor. carburetor. He said, we're going to do some speed? I said, yeah, man, let's go. <laughs> and, and it's like about three o'clock in the afternoon. You know, school's just getting out, you know, the local. And we're, we're just flying, man, up these little narrow uh, New England roads. And I came to this turn that was, I did not quite judge as I might have. And I fishtailed to the left. I'll never oh, forget yeah. it. He caught it, brought it back, swung it back in the tin, the and the and the back right uh, uh, quarter panel came just slamming into a pickup truck that was coming in the opposite direction. Uh, uh, a New England gentleman who had been picking up his kids from school, and he said, uh, "I'll never forget." It. He said, um, "Going a little fast, weren't you, fellas?" And, uh, <laughs> and that was uh, that was pretty much the end of the glory days of that ride. Although it, you know, it it continued to to function it, she was never quite the same. Yeah, yeah. Man, every, yep. every answer you have just keeps getting better, man. This is, this, this is, this is gold, man. I, I, I had this vision of you coming out of D.C., jacked up from working all summer in this cool car, yeah. playing lacrosse. You may not know that you were a lacrosse player, right? In addition into what, – what did you play on the lacrosse team? What, what's that? What position did you play on the lacrosse team? I was attacked, but that's a long story too. I was, yeah, I was, you know, yeah, I was leading scorer freshman, sophomore year, even though I had been 
a goalie in high school. That's another long story. But I played extra man, long story, um, offense in high school. Long story why, why the, the, the sophomore goalie beat me out that, uh, that freshman year. But anyway, two games into the season, they put me at attack. Had a great friend of mine named Fox Smith who used to feed me, and I would score. So I was leading score for the first few years until I started acting, at which point I became like he, Fox and another guy named Pete Vealy were all American, uh, you know, all American senior year. And they look at me like, dude, what happened to you? You know, and that now is now is like the theater knucklehead, you know, but uh, yeah, I did, did play lacrosse and you played football. of course. Yeah. Yeah. You've been, uh, you know, you've been kind of on the attack ever since in different ways. And I wanted to make sure we get into this moment that we're in. Right. And, and, and part of what I believe Jeffrey is, is, you know, I think it's a global war. Right, against this common enemy to kind of frame it up. But there's still a feeling in my, in my heart that some people are in it. Some people uh, really feel it and recognize the stakes and the seriousness of it, and some who don't. Right? There's kind of two camps here, the, the camp that know we're at war and the camp who don't. And you're, you know, you, you're, you're right next to a hospital. You know, as we're talking, you know, we're on Zoom, so apologies and thanks to everyone for, for bearing with the technical challenges, but there are sirens going by your house constantly, right? They've been going by my house constantly for weeks. I've been stopping interviews to do it. And, you know, you're in a very high impact zone and you've got a 90-year-old aunt in your house, right? So can you break down, given your, your, your understanding of history and, you know, your activism and just your, your wealth of perspective, you know, what do you make of, of this moment and the stakes that we're in and just break it down in whatever way you, you're, you're comfortable, you know, the political dynamics that are in play? Well, so you don't want to hear any more about my glory, my, my former uh, lacrosse glory days. Right? I do. I mean, I could talk oh, about that. Bro. That's all I, I got, talk- bro. I can't, I can't do that stuff anymore. Um, anyway. I can um, talk but, about that all day long, man, but we'll go on. This will turn into the Rogan podcast. We'll be here for three hours. Oh, boy. <laughs> we don't want to do that. Let's stay right no. here, baby. Um, so uh, I, yeah. <clears throat> I think one of the things that we are uh, suffering from right now are the results of uh, the last few years of misinformation, of uh, deceptive messaging from, you know, from Trump, from the White House, uh, an absence of veracity, an absence of clear uh, fact-based messaging, because that right now is the answer to public safety. That's the first step, right, is understanding what we're facing uh, and what we do about it. We're not getting that uh, from the executive level of the federal, federal government. And that, I mean, that, that, that approach is criminal to me. Um, this is, a, this is a, a situation that doesn't read the propaganda, that doesn't hear it. Uh, the COVID, uh, you, know, bi- you know, just biologically incapable of buying into that shit, right? So it's going to do what it's going to do regardless. I, for a number of reasons, became pretty deeply involved in the Ebola situation uh, back in 2014, 2015. I'd been involved in some some work in Sierra Leone for about a decade. Uh, That was my focus more so even than acting at the time. We happened to work very closely with a community of about 15,000 people on some uh, um, economic development opportunities around natural resources, both mineral and agricultural. 
Uh, long story how I got involved in this. But again, it was tied to my educational background and my interests. Um, and I had an opportunity to visit during the war in Sierra Leone with a guy who worked for um, uh, worked as security on a film called Ali that we shot in Mozambique. He happened to be a former AAS guy, badass. Uh, he was uh, of the first Fijian regiment of the SAS. We became close very quickly. We worked together over a month and a half. He took me to Sierra Leone because I'd been studying the war for a number of reasons. He said, I said, Fred, where do you live? His name was Fred Marafono. He passed away a few years ago. He said, oh, Sierra Leone. I said, wait, Sierra Leone? What are you doing in Sierra Leone? So he said, oh, uh, uh, you know, I said, how long have you been there? He said, oh, uh, 94. I said, what, 94? I'm going, what? The war kicked off. And I'm going, what? And then, uh, and, then I, uh, and then I went, oh, security, Sierra Leone, 94. Ding, 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 ding. This guy was freelance, you know? Um, but it was more complicated than that. He had Sierra Leone to set up a security operation at, um, at a, a gold exploration site and ended up staying during the war and working with the government. Uh, uh, to try to quell this, uh, this, this rebellion. Anyway, I ended up going with him there. First time I'd been in a war zone because he wanted me to come and see with my own eyes what was happening. So I said, I called my, my, uh, my, my uh, Carmen. She was pregnant at the time. I, I said, uh, hey, this guy wants to take me to Sierra Leone. She said, well, you got to go. It's all you ever talk about. <laughs> you know. So um, I ended up going with him, seeing from a uh, you know, kind of ground truth thing, it was a ceasefire at the time. I'd never seen so many guns in my life, though. You know, 17,000 UN troops in country at the time. I stayed there for four days just to bear witness to what was happening. Again, for a number of reasons that will take too long to explain. And, uh, and I left. We ended up, I ended up starting some projects there, trying to help with the rebuilding to the extent that I could of that country. We ended up working with this community, 15,000 people on the Guinea border, northeast corner of the country, 40 miles from patient zero just over in Guinea. So uh, in um, late spring 2014, I started reading about these uh, reports of the Ebola outbreak in Guinea. Reached out to the local, um, uh, local chiefdom leadership, Paramount chief, guy named uh, uh, Jabila. <clears throat> I said, hey man, you gotta keep an eye out for this thing. Uh, oh, it's not a problem. I said, oh bro, just keep an eye out. You know, sure enough, it crossed the border. Uh, and you know, we, I reached out to the WHO to understand what the needs were. They said, okay, you need PPEs, you need bleach, you need washing stations, stuff, stuff like that. We had been working on some agricultural projects with, with cacao farmers, training them up. This is purely social development. We were doing commercial development on one side and social investment on the other. And so this was, you know, working with cacao farmers, training them up to fair trade standards, working with women vegetable, women's vegetable co-op, training them up. So we diverted $10,000 away from that toward helping the chiefdom prepare itself for this outbreak, which they did, <clears throat> setting up washing stations. They put up a border patrol, all of these things. They lost one person throughout that outbreak. One person, a doctor who had been outside the chiefdom in a nearby town, came back, was infected. He knew what he had. He self-isolated. There was a nurse who looked after him. And un unfortunately, he perished, but no one else did. And this is a community with relatively nothing, zero, in healthcare infrastructure. Uh, you know, the, the reach of the healthcare system there, as fragile as it was, was tenuous at best in this area, right? But nonetheless, with early intervention and organization, they were able to stave this thing off. So 
I became involved for that reason in trying to spread the message around what was happening during Ebola because I was, you know, uh, you know, just one of the few Americans who spent a, had spent a lot of time directly in that area and I, uh, in that region. And I knew that Americans were not uh, as susceptible to that virus as, as we thought we were. We weren't because what we didn't appreciate was that people died more so, yes, because the virus was ferocious and, 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 you know, and, and, and the fatality rate was high, but more so because people lacked access to health care, to intensive care, and even quality care. So that's why folks were dying in such great numbers, right? They were way out there in the bush, man. It took us 12 hours to get there by road, and it's only like 120 kilometers, you know? Really isolated areas. Uh, you know, I visited hospitals because we had helped set up birthing stations for women in our community. So, we, you know, things like that, little small healthcare initiatives that we could, you know, that we could take on that would be impactful. And so I visited hospitals there. There was a government hospital that served 500,000 people in that area. Uh, the operating room lights were powered by a car battery, right? So that's the type of uh, protection these folks had against that thing. We were all freaked out over here. Relax. We got a healthcare system. This thing doesn't transmit so easily. You got to be intimate with someone's secretions, excretions. So, you know, we were way off the mark. And I think in some ways, it might have, because of the, the end result was very positive for us in the United States in terms of uh, cases, right. you know, I think it might have lulled us into a little bit of a complacency about this, right? But this is a very different situation. This virus doesn't spread much easily, uh, much uh, much more easily. It's not nearly as virulent, you know, as you know, as we're coming to understand it. And again, I'm not an expert. I'm just interpreting what I get, you know. Um, but this was a very different situation, right? So as well, when you started to look at what was happening in Wuhan back in January, you heard, you know, a couple of news stories. Oh, hmm. But when I, because of my experience with the Ebola thing. Had a chance to meet Tony Fauci at one point, Larry Brilliant at one point, who was at WHO and part of the team responsible for eradication of smallpox. I knew where to go for information. And at one point, I had been asked to narrate a documentary back in 2016, 2017, called Unseen Enemy that aired on CNN, in which they talk at length about the possibility of a coming pandemic. And they explain what possible scenarios could be. You know, whether it was a wet market, you know, in Asia where a zoonic uh, virus uh, was born or whether, you know, it skips from animal to human or, you know, it, any number of possibilities. Uh, industrial animal husbandry here in our, our country uh, that is potentially dangerous. Of course, now there are reports that perhaps it leaked from, uh, you know, labs studying it, you know, any, but nonetheless, we don't know. But what we do know that is documented is that scientists have been talking about this for years as a possibility, right? right? So when I heard, you know, when I heard Wuhan, I'm, ooh, oh, okay, kind of kept my eye on it. And then one day, <clears throat> I think it may have been after the first case, or no, it was prior to the first case in the States. I remember one day I said, oh, you know, let me just uh, Google Wuhan, you know, where is this town? And then I realized, no, it's not a town at all. It's a city of 11 million people and a transportation hub inclusive of international flights to the United States. And this is a virus that, as far as we knew there, passed more or less like a common cold. Red flags on fucking fire, bro. 
This was mid-January. And anybody who saw that, who's in a leadership position on the, at the federal government, should have, been, should have been wide awake to this possibility. And the steps that, when I came back from Sierra Leone in 2015, after going over there just to check in, the, um, the, uh, the outbreak was subsiding. But nonetheless, when I came back, um, you know, I got calls every day from the CDC. Uh, what's your temperature? Uh, you know, how are you feeling? You know, I was checked at, you know, I was taken aside when I, when I entered customs. Temperature, questionnaire, the whole thing. They were monitoring me for the next, I think it was 21 days. Um, you know, there was a system in place to uh, test to some extent um, to monitor and trace, right? That, it, boom. That's what exactly what should have been happening immediately after that first case. You know, you're talking about banning travel. Yeah, okay, great. But you had 300,000 people in the month of January that came in from China, right? And you didn't ban travel, <laughs> you fucking idiot, for, uh, for everyone coming back. It was just for those with a Chinese passport, as though, you know, this virus was checking people, people's passport credentials, <laughs> right? right? I mean, it's just like, it's just grounded in pure self-aggrandizing, self-fulfilling fantasy. And it has no place in, uh, in, in, in proactive, meaningful political leadership because it's entirely ineffectual. And it's a, it's a damn show, man. It's putting on, I don't even, thankfully I'm too involved now to watch the TV and watch the briefings and stuff. Yeah. But this is a, this is a, some farcical, uh, ridiculous show that you know that's continuing to be put on while people are dying, and 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 I am able to tamp down my anger by getting involved at the local level with my community to some extent, uh, and that is saving me, uh, you know, saving my head from exploding mm. uh, with outrage, frustration, and and a, a serious sense of pissed offness at this nonsense that we are having to face in the midst of an historic uh, crisis in our country that none of us has ever seen. So I usually so, ask guests, um, what makes you angry? But I think I got that. Yeah. <laughs> I think I got it. But I got, you know, bro, as you say, I got my 90 year old aunt sitting downstairs right now. She's glued to the TV herself in between playing Scrabble and doing her puzzles. And, you know, and she's wondering to former nurse, you know, where are these antigen and antibody tests? You know, that's what she's, you know what I mean? I mean, um, you know, we all, we all, uh, I, I can name, there are four guys working at a couple of the, uh, the restaurants over here in our neighborhood, gone. There was a, a, a guy who worked in a deli over here. There was a guy who worked uh, at one of the restaurants. There was a bouncer who worked at one of the bars over here. They checked out, man. They're, they're, they, they moved on. There was a guy who's got a diner over here. His mother, gone. There's another guy uh, at a restaurant. One of the first places I like to eat when I come back, they do this Nashville hot chicken. When I come back to, to town from working, I'm like, man, I got to get that chicken. Yeah. Uh, young guy, man, he's just coming out of it. He's just coming out of an induced coma. He had a, a temperature of 106. He was medevac. He was up in Massachusetts. They medevac him to a hospital in Boston. Yeah. This was three weeks ago. He's barely making it, man. This is like, you know, he's going to be okay, it seems. I've got, you know, I mean, it's just the stories are everywhere. Yeah, and I think that's what, 
I've been trying to sound the alarm about, and I know other folks have as well. I mean, it's easy to feel like, you know, if, if we want to use like a 9-11 comparison, it kind of feels like parts of America are like Iraq and Afghanistan and the rest of folks are marginally inconvenienced. Some places it's getting increasingly inconvenienced, right? But if you're in New York, if you're in Seattle, if you're increasingly in New Orleans, Detroit, uh, D.C., other cities, now you're losing people around you, right? Now it's, it's shifted into yeah. a new phase. And, you know, I, I remember talking to, uh, to folks during the AIDS movement. Which we, were, we were marginally... We were marginally- but we were marginally inconvenienced at one point too. Right, right, right. right? And, now, and now it's it's spreading in a way that I, I still I still feel like there are some of us that are deep in the fight that are losing friends all around us, and other folks are still watching it on TV. But the difference here is this one is going to come across, right? This is not George Bush saying, hey, the terrorists are going to come blow up your mall in Topeka, Kansas. This is a real thing that's coming into your supermarkets. It's coming in to the nursing homes, and, and we're seeing that all across the country. So I've been over the last month and a half on this show, especially, I've been trying to bring people perspective and information and insight from the front line. And I think most folks who maybe clicked on this podcast didn't know how close to this you are. And I'm glad you got into the Ebola experience because I wanted you to talk about that. But you've also shifted it into action. You're, you're, you're mobilizing and organizing your community in a really powerful way, turning that anger into positive impact. So can you talk about Brooklyn for Life and what you're actually doing to organize people in Fort Greene and, and throughout Brooklyn right now? Yeah, sure. I, um, you know, I'll tell you the, the, the facts as they are. They started off pretty simply. I was just trying to help out a couple of buddies of mine whose food I like to eat, man. You know, uh, Michael Thompson, uh, his, his uh, spot, Brooklyn Moon, has been in this uh, community for 25 years. I've, I've lived here for 20 years. I used to play, you know, we, we don't play much so, so much more anymore, but I used to go there. We play chess, man. We had, uh, there was a chess crew that came in there. We, you know, drank our whiskey or whatever. We played chess and grabbed some, you know, some jerk wings. And, you know, he's been, he's an institution here. Yeah. Uh, Vito, Vito Rondazzo uh, owns a place called Graziella's just up the road, four blocks up, you know, great pizza. He's been there for 15 years. I order, you know, my kids and I order his pizza on the regular. Lasagna, oh my God, you want, you know, you want him there yeah. when this is all done. I yeah. want that lasagna there. I want that goat cheese salad, that calamari there, okay? I want Mike there. I want, you know, I want to go in for some jerk wings and a whiskey over there, you know? So this was like, there was selfish intent behind this. And I was like, hey, guys, it started with Mike. He's not a delivery-oriented space. When I was in London, I said, Michael, man, this, we're going to go on lockdown. I, 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 I know it's coming. So you better be prepared and, you know, maybe reorganize yourself to a delivery, uh, delivery, to delivery mode so that you can, you know, you can stay, uh, stay afloat through this. So I, I told him, I'll help you, you know, boost it on social media, you know, that you, um, that you, that you have. And so we, I got back here, I think it was March 15th. I got back shortly thereafter we went on lockdown. You know, Mike had, you know, done what he could to, uh, to, to adjust. And, uh, I called him next day. I said, Hey Mike, man, I, I said, how you doing? He said, bro, I did five orders today, man. I'm like, oh, wow. Okay, that's not sustainable, you know? So then someone shortly thereafter pinged me uh, that Vito uh, had uh, on social media that Vito had been delivering pizzas to the hospital. He had uh, customers call in to buy pizzas on behalf of Brooklyn Hospital staff. And I thought, Michael and I were thinking about how we, you know, other means for, you know, helping his business. And I thought about the hospital, but I assumed the cafeteria was, was up and running and they didn't need the help. But Vito, 
uh, put me in touch with a guy named Lenny Singletary over there, who's just an incredible uh, you know, soldier in this thing. He is external affairs uh, VP uh, for the hospital. Got in touch with him. Vito and I went down to meet with him. We chatted six feet apart, mask on outside the hospital. He said, you know, actually we could use the augmentation of our cafeteria because we got people working 15, 16 hour days. They're not going home. They're staying in hotels near the hospital. There's you know, nothing to eat late at night. So if you can help us, that'd be great. So that was March 27th. We began, I think March 25th, I started the GoFundMe page and it was really oriented toward these two restaurants, Graziella's and Brooklyn Moon, delivering 200 meals per day to Brooklyn Hospital. Uh, and, uh, so we, you know, of course started thinking about other restaurants, you know, and this was like, man, I really love that fried chicken at peaches. You know, I want that to be there. And they were friends of mine as well. They started to reach out to their, uh, circle. We pulled in more restaurants. We, we needed to increase the demand. So we reached out to additional hospitals. Lenny put us in touch. The Brooklyn Borough president, Eric Adams, the office reached out said, hey, I hear what you're doing. We love this. We, we want to expand it Brooklyn-wide and we'll support you in doing that. They've been incredible. So now we have 38 partner restaurants throughout Brooklyn. We're delivering on, on average over 2,500 meals per day. We've got six medical facilities in Brooklyn. We've got one in Lower Manhattan, New York Presbyterian, that we're serving because they that was kind of they snuck in there because everybody wants to be in Brooklyn, you know. Yeah. So we're that's serving my, that's them. my neighborhood. That's where my kid was born. Oh uh, wow! So yeah. we got seven medical facilities, and we've got all ten EMS stations in Brooklyn, uh, uh, and that has been with the help of uh, of the uh, VP for EMS uh, Officers Union. Uh, Anthony Almiero, who has, uh, who has been in just, man, he, I mean, these guys, he, he's been incredible in helping us, uh, make the outreach, but also he's been wonderful, uh, wonderfully supportive in the midst of everything he's going through. And he's been, you know, kind of giving me insight as to what the paramedics and EMTs are going through. And, uh, man, that, that, that ain't a, that ain't a, that ain't a, that ain't a story that's going away anytime soon because what they're seeing, you talked about nine 11, one of the hospital uh, reps described is the, what we're happening, what we're happening, what we're going through now is nine 11 in slow motion. Mm. And what Anthony told me was that they're receiving, you know, this was a couple of weeks ago, they were receiving more calls daily than they received on nine 11, nine 11 was the record 6,500 calls per day. They were hitting right. 7,200 calls, yep. 6,500 calls every day. And of course on nine 11, sadly, a lot of those calls didn't all patients ultimately. Uh, the, the, these calls involve, involve a patient every day. And what they're facing is a lot of situations for the paramedics in which they, as he, t as he describes to me, they show up and they're unable to do anything. And so he's telling me, man, I had 12, para, uh, 12 uh, cardiac arrests today, you know, and there was nothing that could be done. Uh, we can't take them in. It's, you know, uh, it's too late. And, you know, this is COVID related. And, you know, they're seeing things that's really putting the grind on their psyches. And this is a story that needs to be followed going forward, like, like the story of your colleagues coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. This is a story I think that's going to need to be followed in terms of, you know, the moral injury for these folks going forward, as well as those who are uh, being affected by this, uh, yeah. by this thing. So I think, I think that's, uh, that's, 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 that's what Brooklyn for Life is, man. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's leadership, man. It's so inspiring to see this grow. And I have, you know, my best friend lives in Fort Greene. I have a lot of friends who live in your neighborhood. And they know that we're in touch. And they see us interact in, in, at events and on Twitter. And they said, man, you know, your friend Jeffrey's doing awesome out here. Let him know how much we appreciate it. We've had Rob Sarah on the show who's been talking about the need for first responders and firefighters and cops and EMTs. And they continue to be underserved and under-resourced. So, I mean, there, there's a parallel here. I mean, it's it's... It's our firefighters. It's our it's our doctors. It's our it's now our active duty troops. It's veterans dying in nursing homes. It's all these folks that we're asking to be frontline fighters against the virus, and they're walking in with no body armor and no ammunition. And if they don't get backup from someone, yeah. like you they're they're stranded. So I think you know you're making a huge impact on the ground. Well, 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 hold on, Paul. Yeah, well, I appreciate that, but it's but you know this is a grassroots thing, and you know I'm the guy up front. But these restaurant owners and these restaurant workers are busting ass, man. I and, love they, and they are feeling, they're feeling, they're, they're amped up about this. You know, they're feeling engaged. They're feeling purposeful. And it, it, for example, I called Interfaith Hospital in Bed-Stuy. They have a cafeteria that's run by a private country, uh, co- uh, company, forgive me, uh, farmed out. And, the, and, the, and the, the, the company reduced operations so that they were only providing meals for patients. Mm. So you, so I called up uh, this beautiful uh, uh, woman named Sharani Perry. She herself had just gotten out of ICU with something unrelated, but she uh, uh, she works um, as an administrator over there. And I said, "Hey, I'm just you know, you know, Jeffrey Wright. We just started this thing. Just wanted to see if you guys are okay for meals." She said, "What?" Hmm. She said, "I need 600 meals a day." Wow. You know. And so uh, she said, she, she told me that, you know, they were no longer providing meals. The, the facility was no, no longer providing meals to the staff and everything's closed. And we're asking them to do, uh, you know, this heroic work with no fuel. So uh, it's, it's these restaurant owners. I, I think the wonderful thing about it is there's a need on both sides. Um, there's a critical need at the front line for basic sustenance. The restaurant owners need revenues to stay afloat, keep their, you know, some employees, they're not, maybe not fully staffed, but at least keep a few, you know, folks work, you know, you know, working, uh, working and, 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 and paid. And also we're taking donations, but in some ways it's not a charity, right? We're 501c3, not-for-profit tax deductible donation now. But everybody who is donating, who lives in this community, needs to do this for their own uh, (laughs) well-being. They need to look out for those folks at those hospitals because if they go down, hell's going to, you know, you know, hell's breaking out and we're all going to suffer. So this is this is about the whole community. The whole structure of this thing is everybody looking out for one another and at the same time looking out for themselves. So. You know, a little bit of, little bit of, yeah, that, that's leadership. We've talked a lot about the importance of humility and leadership on this show. And I think that's what, you know, is a constant for you, but, but it is an, an, an important thing that's happening where you've got the borough president and you've got people in the hospitals and you've got you and the restaurant owners. And there's an alchemy here that has to happen. That's like at the heart of community organizing and at the heart of responding 
to any kind of an immediate threat of this magnitude. And, you know, if you are one or the catalyst and a part of that mix, I think it's what is so inspiring for me about this, but it's also a contrast, Jeffrey. So, you know, you are showing a kind of leadership. Those restaurant owners are showing a kind of leadership. At the same time, we've got the president on one side and we've got, in my my view, de Blasio also, who has been slow and has been uninformed and has been, you know, defensive. And I think you know, really, hasn't really stepped up to the moment. I have to say, yeah. hasn't you know, hasn't really been uh, you know, unlike Cuomo. Cuomo looks like he was born for this, man. You yeah. know, everybody, everybody's everybody's dealing with the, with, with the same you know uh, data sets and information, and that's been changing day to day. We know only as much as we know or can know. So he's made some missteps along the way, but in terms of information, uh, which is understandable, but as far as leadership. As far as this clarity of his voice, the compassion which, with which he has, you know, uh, has delivered information and directive, man, I mean, it lo- you know, it looks like he, he was born, you know, he came out of the womb reading the, the, the manual on this thing, man. It's been, it's been everybody, really comforting. You know, everybody's getting, getting dealt a shitty hand of cards and you got to figure out how to play them, right? And, and, right? and not just the tactics, but the spirit and the strategy. And you can now see who's got the, the chops for this and who doesn't, yeah. but also who's got the character for it, right? Yeah. And I see a lot of parallels between the way de Blasio handles it and Trump does. And I've said oftentimes there's similarities to them, the way they come after the media, the way they don't take responsibility. It, it may be a reach for some people, but when you're close to it, I think you can see that there are parallels that when the, when the shit hits the fans start to reveal themselves. But there's been a failure of leadership in so many different levels. I want to ask you, Jeffrey, number one, um, to, now that Biden is the nominee, you know, your thoughts, you've been very active in, 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 in raising your voice about the process and, 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 and criticizing fairly the president. What's your thoughts now on Biden and the landscape? And, and you personally, would you ever run for office locally in Brooklyn or in, at the city level? We'd love to see you as a mayor right now instead of de Blasio. But would you ever take that leap yourself, maybe later in your career or at some other point in your life? Um, you know, I'm a creative guy, you know, I, I'm, I think there's a place for an infusion, as I described earlier, of politics and art. I like that role. I like, you know, applauding when folks, when the politicians do well, and I like throwing stones at the motorcade when they don't, you know, <laughs> I like that role, you know, uh, I'm also, I don't know if my, my personality is ego and all that thing is suited for it. I like, I like to have my alone time, you know, don't bother me, you know, and you know, you got to be accountable all the time. So maybe that's a shortcoming uh, for me in terms of that. But um, uh, I think that um, uh, you were asking about uh, less about me. You were asking about the uh, about Biden. Uh, yeah. Now that Biden, uh, company, uh, we record this today on Wednesday. Yeah. Elizabeth Warren came out and supported him. Obama's now unleashed. You know, I've, I've often yeah. used uh, another HBO show as a parallel when I talk about Game of Thrones, now the tribes are, are coming together around their Jon Snow and these dragons are coming online, the, right? Like the Obama Avengers are assembling. Yeah, Obama's coming online and Biden's coming online. And, you know, some of them are dragons and some of them are giants, but they're all coming now around this, this central leader who has been designated as Biden. But what are your thoughts now on, on him and, you know, the future of this, of this process and what we need? How do we, how do, how do we as activists and how are you as an activist going to engage in this now that the, the ultimate battle has come um, as the battle, another battlefield unfolds around us. It's Biden versus Trump. What, do you, what are your thoughts on where we are right now? I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that, you know, uh, that Joe 
Biden is the next president of the United States. I don't think we have any choice. I was in, you know, if you're watching the show Westworld, you can see that we filmed in Singapore uh, last summer. Yeah. First time I've been there. First time I've been to the region, really. Uh, Southeast Asia, you know, closest I've been to Hawaii to that region, you know. And uh, so it uh, was there. Beautiful place. Incredible architecture. Futuristic and well-ordered. But also it's a velvet uh, totalitarian state, you know. Uh, you know, you're not going to say everything you want to say over there. You're not going to create the type of art that we create over there because, you know, freedom of expression has given birth to what we, the stories we tell here, the music we play here. That's why the music we play here is heard all over the world. That music that came from the South, from people emerging out of bondage and making lyrical uh, beauty and expressions of hope through the blues that changed the way the world listened to music because it resonated with, 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 with the freedom that they aspired to. When they played rock and roll on the Berlin Wall, it was, a, it was homage to those black folks in the South, right, who created that music. And that was because even though we had problems here, we were still a country that was about freedom of expression, first and foremost, and a society that bucked against authoritarianism every step along the way. And when I went to Singapore, I went, ooh, wow, man. Okay, you look at Singapore, you look at the Philippines, China, you look at Russia, Hungary, you, you, know, you look at Brazil, you go, oh man, there's dominoes tumbling here, right? And, uh, toward authoritarianism and these impulses are being lit all over the country, all over the world. And if they happen in our country, if we allow that to happen in the United States of America, you know, who's showing up on D-Day, right? Mm. You know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's all we, it's who, it's the only thing. We're not perfect. We're flawed. But at least, you know, uh, we give space. We give space for the idea of freedom, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes we get a glimpse of it and we actually realize a bit of real freedom too, you know? So we can't... <laughs> If that dies, then, you know, we go. And this guy, Trump, because he's a, you know, he's intellectually uh, lazy, he, he's narcissistic, he lacks curiosity, he's deeply, deeply, pathetically insecure, he's allowed these impulses toward authoritarianism, and we've learned that there's a portion of our country that is susceptible and submissive to that, desirous of that. You see it reflected in the evangelical culture. You see all of these uh, these these subsets of our society that are, um, you know, uh, wary of their freedom. You know, Eric Fromm wrote, you know, wrote some great uh, essays on the authoritarian personality and who's susceptible to it, and the symbiotic relationship between the leader and the follower, and you know. And this desire to escape freedom and all of these things, you know, and you look at it and you, it maps out as to what's going on here. We have no fucking choice, man. And if you love, uh, if you love your, if you love yourself and you, and you, and you appreciate that you as an American, although we have problems that you are defined more so than so many other places in this world, your ability to say what the fuck you want. At core, you know, you might take some hits, but 
uh, that's a fundamental right here. Uh, if you if you recognize that, then you have no choice but to uh, but to do everything you, you can to put Joe Biden in the in the in the White House. And I understand he's not perfect, but if we do that at the same time, uh, Bernie Sanders is coming along with him. Mm-hmm. Last year, 2016, Bernie Sanders himself said the Democratic platform is the most progressive that the party has ever drafted. That's true. Right? Yeah, that's true. And, and, and likewise, this time, we, you know, it's a big tent and we have to be inclusive of, uh, of, 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 the, of the left-leaning, uh, of a left-leaning movement in our country right now, particularly among youth. And this outbreak has shown us that intense vulnerabilities that Bernie was trying to articulate around health care, the safety net, and all of that. The key is how do we get there? We don't get there through, um, you know, catchphrases and a mantra. There are many, you know, there, there, you know, there are many ways to skin this, but let's, but he, his voice has, is a powerful one right now uh, for me in terms of where we're going to, uh, as we head toward November. He's not out of the picture. He just uh, came in and endorsed Biden. Of course, you know, uh, Obama and Elizabeth Warren uh, today. I mean, let's, you know, as I was looking at those debates and as I'm reading, you know, uh, platforms from each of these candidates, it's like, no, come on. Can we synthesize all the best? There's some great ideas here. They don't necessarily, all of them don't, don't, aren't housed in one individual candidate. But if we could synthesize all those best ideas and express them through one candidate, and, you know, not only will we have a, you know, a powerful chance in November, we'll have a, a great agenda to push forward and some great work to do and some great outcomes to achieve. So, um, man, I mean, it's time to <laughs> dust off, the, the, you know, you know, gird yourself, throw the ego out. If you weren't, a, you know, Biden, yeah, okay. No, man, let's, hey, let's do this, man. This yeah. goddamn it. I, <laughs> Uh, there's no way, uh, you know, not, you know, not four seconds more of this, uh, of this paucity of leadership in, 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 in Washington, D.C. at the executive level, executive, executive level, because it has consequences. And there are people who died from this thing, from this COVID outbreak, who did not have to die as a result of the leadership in Washington, D.C. And if you don't see that now, if you don't care about that now, then you don't care about anything. Mm. Yes. Yes. I mean, stakes has never been higher. And that's what I've been saying. Angry Americans, right? This is the Angry Americans show, right, Paul? That that was just like, that was like a 10 minute commercial for this show right there, man. That was, that's that's what it's all about. And I'm so glad that you got a chance to to run with it because one of, one of the things I've always known about you in in, in my knowing you is that, you know, I I think folks maybe watch you in the parts you play, and they, they think, man, he's a fantastic actor. And, and, you know, these are other people's words that maybe you're, 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 you're performing. But your words, your, your, your rhetoric and your uh, oration and your, your understanding and your vision and just your, your, your rhythm and your intensity is so powerful and important. I mean, it, it's... Hey, well, you know, listen, let me tell you about that. 
the way you break it down, hold on if I can. Like the way you break it down is a way that, that especially right now, has has a righteous anger to it. And when I talk about righteous, you know, I talk about angry Americans. It was, you know, it was everybody from George Washington to Harvey Milk was an angry Americans. And I think I think people are not angry enough. And what you do, what you choose to do with that, and the same way you play those cards as a politician is the key. And and you are recognizing, I think, identifying something that I've been trying to say. Look, the existential threat is Trump. Like the coronavirus isn't even, in my view, as big of a threat as Trump. Because there will be other things. We will beat the coronavirus. We'll find a way. There are two if we, outbreaks. If we, don't, if we don't take out Trump, then, then he could fuck up the next thing. The next thing could be Korea. The next thing could be, you know, anything else that happens. So we've got to recognize that he is still the primary mission, is beating him. And I'm an independent. So many of us are not Democrats or don't have a party or Republicans. So now if we can finally align against the pandemic and then use that as momentum to align against Trump and then look ahead to rebuild, that's what that's where I think our minds need to be. And we've got to pick ourselves up out of the immediate five-meter target fight and recognize that this has such everlasting consequences. And, and I really do think it's the fight of our time. I mean, this is our world war. I, and, and we're truly interconnected. I, I agree. And, and if you look at what Biden... Yeah, please. I, I agree. But and to your point, if you look at, in terms of, you know, the, 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 the next phase in the battle, if you look at what Biden said, he's talking about one term. He said, I'm not running two terms. One, this is a bridge, right? Let's yep. get us a bridge out and a bridge toward. And yep. let's use that. And his VP candidate is going to be, you know, a major, major decision. It always yeah. is, but even more so now, because that could potentially be your next president. Yeah. Uh, should he, uh, you know, uh, have the good fortune of being elected? You know, uh, I like, um, you know, and I, I like Elizabeth Warren, I have to tell you, because I think she is too, she represents a bridge between, uh, you know, spaces on the spectrum, you know, Mm. Uh, she, uh, she's progressive, but she also, uh, speaks, uh, to, to the center or at least the economic center in a way that says, listen, uh, I just want to put you in check, right? Okay. I don't want to destroy, uh, you know, uh, uh, the economic system, but the economic system needs to work better for all. She recognizes that the engine is a powerful one but the engine is not inclusive of all. So it's about major reforms and protections in a very specific way. I mean, I think the two of them together as a bridge, you know, Joe Biden as a bridge toward, uh, uh, you know, uh, a kind of uh, a more progressive view, but a, but a progressive view, a view that's, that's appreciative um, that we're all, you know, we're, 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 we're you know, we're, we're out of one many. You know, there are many perspectives and uh, many institutions that you may hate them, but they're still here. Wall Street, Wall Street, you know, you know, uh, may be destructive in some ways, but Wall Street is not going anywhere anytime soon. And you better figure out a way to uh, incentivize Wall Street to do those progressive things that you want. Incentivize Wall Street to invest in communities like Brownsville, Brooklyn, right? So that Brownsville, Brooklyn kids have economic opportunities that are going to lead them away from the destructive opportunities of incarceration and toward more productive lives. But Wall Street could play a role there. Wall Street doesn't have to be an enemy to that. Yeah. Um, So anyway, I I just I I like her uh, kind of uh, pragmatism. Uh, and I also, you know, like the fact that we do need female, uh, the female influence on our uh, political, uh, highest level of political leadership. We've had, 
you know, uh, you know, 250 years of male mistakes, you know, <laughs> hey, you know, some, a woman can, let's give a woman the right to, you know, do some great things and maybe have a few mistakes too, you know? Yeah. I mean, come on, man. It's absurd. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Well, yeah. I think, I think, you know, you, you're, you're, you nail something important about Biden as a, as a bridge or as a band-aid or as the consoler in chief, or we've gone through this terribly traumatic experience that is the Trump presidency compounded by now the coronavirus. We need someone to kind of, to bring the temperature down to make people feel better, to be a unifier, you know, in, in a way that, that we're starting to see around Biden, you know, in, in some ways, not even because of him, just because he has now become the leader who the, who the process has chosen and a recognition that he is the one that is going to be in the ring against Trump. But I, I think, I don't know where they're going to go on the VP candidate. I don't think there's ever been a more important VP choice. I will identify something I think is really important. I've been talking right. about the show. I'm glad Biden's in a basement. I'm glad he's in a basement. I'm glad he's not out shaking hands. I mean, as long as I've said this all along, if no, Biden, it, the, the only thing that was going to stop Biden is if he dies or if he gets sick. And I said that before coronavirus, you know, that was going to be the way yeah. I saw it unfolding. And, and, and similarly, you know, between Trump and Sanders and Nancy Pelosi, a lot of them are now increasingly vulnerable with the coronavirus out there. So if Biden's going to be in a basement for the next yeah. seven months, good. And he's got, you know, Obama, and Michelle and Warren and Buttigieg and so many other people that are dynamic, especially on a little box like this. I, I think it, it's a really mm -hmm. exciting um, landscape of, of adversaries for Trump to have to face. But I want to ask you, Jeffrey, if I can, um, in this pandemic, people are connecting with you and your activism and your work, but a lot of them are also hunkered down watching shitloads of Westworld. Right. If Biden's down yeah. in, in the basement, he's probably watching Westworld. The whole world is watching Westworld right now. That's cool. So um, can I ask you, you know, your thoughts on Westworld in this moment? Right. Because, you know, there's going to be critics who pull it apart. We all have our fans. I'm a massive fan of the show. I think you're brilliant. I think the show is brilliant. But what are your thoughts on on Westworld right now in this moment? For some people, it's an escape. For some people, maybe it's a, it's a bit of a wake up call. Um, but what are your thoughts on how Westworld is, is impacting or, or you'd like to impact this moment in history? Well, um, Westworld, particularly this year, yeah. uh, looks a lot like our world <laughs> and it, uh, it, uh, Hey, Hey, Hey buddy, <laughs> give me a sec. My son, my oh, son just, just popped in. Um, um, give me a sec, Lige. <laughs> I'm going to wrap up with your dad in a second. Yeah. So, um, it, you know, it's speaking to the ways in which we behave. Uh, it speaks to the drivers that inform our behavior. Technology, the manipulation of technology, the, um, the manipulation of, uh, of, um, of messaging. And, and things like that. So without giving too much away, I mean, we're still exploring, um, you know, from a construct of, in, you know, futuristic construct, we're very much exploring the world we all inhabit right now. Mm. Now, the ways in which it, uh, you know, this COVID has uh, affected that, obviously, yeah, we're all hungered down. A lot of people are, are watching it. Um, but I think there's, <clears throat> there there's an outbreak that has occurred prior to COVID. That outbreak involves technology and its misuse, mm. uh, misinformation, disinformation, the division that 
has been fomented by the technology and the abuse, abuse of the technology. You know, you're on Twitter, I'm on Twitter. You see saying, holy man, we're, you know, there's, there's a, uh, you know, who, who, who among us was able to forecast the ways in which this, the, the information age would, would, would mutate into the disinformation age and, the, and, and, and a divisive, uh, embittered age. And uh, so that it was one of those first viral out- outbreaks, right? Yeah. Um, so the explorations, I think perhaps that we're, you know, we're on this, uh, you know, this year in the show or, or, or more uh, um, relevant in, in their metaphors than they, they, you know, than they might've been otherwise. But, uh, you know, we all, you know, we, Jonah, Nolan, Lisa, Joy are uh, brilliant, some brilliant thinkers and uh, they're probing, you know, uh, from a technological side and a social side, you know, Jonah's very close with Elon Musk, you know, very good friends with him. You know, he gets insight on AI from him and who do I talk to? And talks to the other and he himself was a programmer Jonah too and Lisa you know Lisa went to Harvard Law and was off you know doing other things at McKinsey and wherever else and it's like what, what you know what world am I in? and she started writing these are really interesting thinkers and really capable writers and great leaders too great leaders optimistic leaders you know big show a lot of money a lot of moving parts complex stories but they rally everyone and we, you know we hit some bumps in the road but I've never seen Jonah not take, uh, you know, a uh, uh, challenge or, you know, crisis, however small, you know, relative to what we do and convert it into an opportunity. He always looks at, ah, okay, that's okay. What I'll do, I'm going to reshape it and we'll go that way with the story. You know, don't worry about it. I'm, and I'm always like, why do we do that? Like, no, don't worry about it, bro. I got it. We'll, re- you know, and we'll move on. So, um, you know, great leaders, man. And uh, I hope everybody's digging, digging what we do because we dig it. And uh, we love doing it together too. Yeah, it, uh, you know the showrunners, uh, those two the writers, the directors, but also you know people talk about uh, 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 people have a perception of what we do. You were talking about oh he says words somebody else writes. Well, you know less so on this show. When I tend to, I rewrite some stuff too, but yeah. we're also we're interpreters of language, right? Actors, right. we interpret language, you interpret story, just like a musician who plays. You know the guys sitting over in. Carnegie Hall or um, my, my very good friend who plays violin at the Met, you know, he's interpreting that, you know, 340 year old music. We interpret this stuff and we choose what we do because it speaks to us. Um, but also what people don't understand about what we do is that when we make these things, it's a, it's a collective of people that aren't just in front of the camera and in newspapers or whatever the, 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 the heck it is. They're carpenters, they're electricians, they're grips, you know, they're craftsmen of all types coming together, you know, to, uh, to tell these stories. And that's the best part of doing what we do for me is being a part of that circle, right? And when the camera's on, they look at me, you know, you know working class guys, you know, I'm getting prayed pretty well. They look at me and they go, okay, he's with us. All right, let's kill it. Let's kill it. Let's move that, that you know. Let's, uh, you know, 65 uh, toss power trap. Let's move, let's matriculate the ball down the field, boys. I love that. I shake hands with my, uh, my key grip, Mike Anderson. He looks me in the eye and the first thing in the morning, he knows we're going to roll. It's, yeah. it's a great game. And you throw, you throw Marshawn Lynch in the mix, too. Hey, baby. Beast mode. Put like, yourself in. I was not ready for that when he came on. I lost my shit. I was like, yeah. 
holy shit, that's Marshawn Lynch. My wife is like, who? And I was like, it's fucking Marshawn Lynch. But it, yeah. it is it is spectacular. It's stunning. It's it's beautiful this season, especially. Oh man! Oh, so visually, just just awe inspiring. Yeah. But it's also very important, and I know it's given people a lot of uh, relief and connection. Uh, it gives folks something to connect on that's 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 inspiring, uh, that's thoughtful, but also can connect us in other ways. And I, I want to let you go. I know your son is coming in. I have one final question to ask you that I ask of all guests, which is Jeffrey Wright. What makes you yeah. happy? What makes you happy? Uh, seeing my son right there. Yeah. That makes me happy, man. You know, family uh, makes me happy, uh, you know, uh, and and surfing in the surfing. ocean. Surfing. Uh, especially with my family. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Well, the final thing we do is a presentation of the gifts. I can't do it to you physically, but I will normally uh, present you with some Angry Americans gear that I will send to you. Okay, that's cool. Coming, it's coming your way, American made by veterans in the United States. Uh, I will Please. also send you a bottle of whiskey, and I have to carefully select the right bottle for you. Now you yeah. have your own whiskey company. That's going to be tough, but I'm going <laughs> to find one for you. Uh, and I normally have you too. And I normally have three kinds of peeps. I ran out of my peep stash, but Easter just came up. It was a tradition on the show, and I ask all guests if you had blue, yellow, or pink peeps. Which color would you choose, Jeffrey Wright, and why? Yeah, I got to go yellow, man. You know, I'm kind of a traditionalist in some ways. You know, the good old yellow peeps take me back home, man. You know, yeah. And, and you're a classic guy, man. I figured, I figured. <laughs> and then lastly, I will send you uh, the, some awesome stuff from Bravo Sierra. They are a sponsor. They have antibacterial body wipes. So if you don't get to leave your house for a long time, they will, they will be on their way to you as well, and you can watch. Yeah, I keep it in the pocket, man. I ordered four gallons online about uh, six weeks ago. This is my kit. When I go, I got this. I got my mask over there. You know, hey, man, you know. You're, you're, you're good names, after, man, and, and you are, we always want inspiring, iconic, important Americans as guests on this show, and you are one. That I've, since I started this show, I really wanted to have this conversation. You've been doing so much for this country, for this globe, for this community. Um, I really consider you a role model for me and, and so many other people. And, and I'm just grateful for you, man. Grateful for your leadership, for your voice, for your talent, for your generosity. And, you know, in this moment, you know, to see you continuing to find ways to use your talents and, and use your network to move the country forward is a real source of hope and inspiration at a time when folks really need it. Well, so thank you for all you do. And, and thank you for joining me on this program. I, I'm going to continue to support you in any way I can. We're going to let people support the charities that you're involved in, but thank you, man, for all you do. Well, I, I appreciate all that. Just trying to be like you, bro. I mean, just, <laughs> just trying to do my, you know, do, do my, do my part here and, and try to avoid sitting here grizzled and, and getting fat, you know, well, uh, we're, you just know. Too, we're just too old. Uh, we're not Lord Jeff's anymore. So we're mammoths and the, 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 the right. model of the school is that Terrace Iridian, let them bring light upon the world. And you are bringing light yeah. everywhere you go, man. You know, come on. You know, you're now. You're, you know, That's you're, it. I'm going to leave it there and say. Yeah, thank okay. You. All right. All right. And, That's and a lot. As That's I said, I'll say, keep bringing the light. Thank you to your son. Thank you to the turtles. Here's my light. Here's, here's my boy here. He just stepped back in. So, he's, yeah. His dad's a good man. But stay frosty, my friend. Thank you for doing hey, this. Hey, cool. Paul, thank you so much. I appreciate you, man. Appreciate your voice and all this. And, and. And of course, you know, all the work done, man. And uh, I'm just uh, I'm just honored to be here with you, bro. Excellent. Thank you, my friend. Everything's different in the world now. But in this time of the pandemic, 
you want to make every dollar you spend count and you want to get stuff that actually improves your life. So you want to simplify without having to sacrifice performance. And I've told you about Bravo Sierra. Bravo Sierra engineers highly effective, non-toxic grooming products that stand the test of the most active lifestyles or the most demanding pandemic. In fact, Bravo Sierra has pioneered an unprecedented large-scale testing program with 1,000 military service members in their community. It's a simple idea. If the products work for them, they'll work for us. So think of them as a super group of testers, 1,000 military folks who test everything Bravo Sierra does. And Bravo Sierra gives back 5% of all sales to MWR support for active duty service members, veterans, and their families. They're also sending tons of product to folks that are on the front lines of the corona fight. But they will send them to you. If you go to bravosierra.com, use the hashtag angry. You'll feel clean. You'll look good. You'll smell great all day long. Even if you're not taking a shower every day, you can go with their products and smell good. It's perfect for a pandemic. And Men's Health calls it a game-changing grooming line. It's true. Many of you have already tried it. I've seen lots of tweets, gotten lots of notes. I'm glad you like it. Check out the Hygiene Ready Set. Only two products you need to be clean and ready to go. It's got the solid cleanser to wash your hands, face, body, and hair as frequently as needed. It's perfect if you're coming in from outside and need to decontaminate. The solid cleanser from Bravo Sierra is exactly what you need. And the antibacterial wipes are perfect when you have no access to water or you need a refresher or you need an antibacterial wipe. And who doesn't need antibacterial wipes right now? I think we all do. So go to bravosierra.com backslash angry. They are our newest partner, and I am happy to have them on board. Flo Groberg likes them. I've sent some to Paul Hazer and his crew. I'm sending some to Jake Wood, and Jeffrey Wright's getting some for him and his turtles in Brooklyn. And they kind of look like they came from Westworld. Very modern packaging I think Bernard would approve. And right now you can get the Bravo Sierra starter set for free. It's three of their best-selling products, the awesome deodorant, the hair and body wash solid cleansing bar, and the hair grooming cream. And all you got to do is pay $6.95 for shipping. Limited time. Go to Bravo Sierra backslash Angry Americans. And if you buy anything else, use the code ANGRY for 15% off all orders. The Bravo Sierra team will hook you up. That's bravosierra.com, bravosierra.com. Use the code angry grooming essentials field tested by members of the u.s military for men and women made in the usa perfect for the pandemic and perfect for kicking ass just like this show check them out bravosierra.com there's always reason to be angry especially right now but as jeffrey wright showed you there's also reason to be hopeful There's reason to be optimistic. There's reason to be involved. And there's reason to keep your calm. Because more than the virus, more than the stupid, calm is contagious. And if you keep your calm and you wash your hands and you eat your vegetables, especially as a nation at war, there's a way to make an impact. There's a way to turn that anger, sadness, frustration, inspiration, depression into positive impact. It's time to be a helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. Every show, I suggest a way of converting that righteous, understandable anger into some positive action. Positive action that shows that angry Americans can also be impactful Americans. Action that channels your energy, makes you feel good, and makes a difference, especially right now. And like this show, our actions are always packed with the four eyes: Integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. A bottle of red, a 
bottle of whites. Now you heard about it from Jeffrey. The outbreak is touching us all, whether or not we come into contact with the coronavirus. Of course, on the front lines of the efforts to protect us from this pandemic are the healthcare workers and the first responders. They're feeling pressures right now that most of us can't even comprehend. And also, small businesses, particularly locally owned restaurants, are facing huge financial pressures as Brooklyn in particular isolates to slow the spread of coronavirus 19. They've had to lay off workers, revenue has dropped sharply, but many are still rolling by converting their operations into full-time takeout and delivery service. Now, Jeffrey writes, Brooklyn for Life crew assists these efforts with the fuel your tax-deductible donations. It started out as Operation Pizza. Vito Rendazzo, the owner of the 15-year-old Graziella's Italian restaurant on Vanderbilt Avenue, an awesome spot, started inviting customers to order pizza for delivery to staff at the Brooklyn Hospital. Then, a guy named Michael Thompson, the owner of the 25-year-old Brooklyn Moon Cafe in Fulton Street, joined in offering delivery of his Caribbean soul food, all under the guidance of Lenny Singletary, the Brooklyn Hospital VP for External Affairs. It's a true team effort. Now, they've expanded that initial outreach with Brooklyn for Life, an initiative managed by Brooklyn for Life Incorporated, a registered 501c3. And since that initial operation of 200 meals per day to Brooklyn Hospital, they've increased their deliveries to over 2,000 meals per day, provided by a rotating partnership of 38 Brooklyn for Life restaurants. There's a whole list on the website. And with the support of the office of Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, who's also a former cop, Brooklyn for Life is aiming for borough-wide impact, and I'm sure it's a model that could replicate across the country. The goal is to fund every Brooklyn for Life restaurant, enabling them to provide at no cost to the recipients at least 100 meals per day for delivery to the Brooklyn front lines of this pandemic. And then they looped in Green Bites, a bodega across the street from the Brooklyn Hospital that provides a $500 per day allowance so anybody walking in with a Brooklyn Hospital ID gets food and drink on the house. In doing this, they keep Brooklyn grills and ovens hot to feed their community health care workers and keep some of their vital small businesses and members or staff afloat in these tough times. Restaurants are culture in Brooklyn, like so many other places. They're where we eat, of course, but they're how we stay connected. They're where we live. And they're providing local food for Brooklyn's frontline fighters in places like Brookdale Hospital. You heard about Brookdale Hospital from Dr. Paul Hazer two episodes ago. It's a, an incredibly tough place. And Brooklyn Hospital, Cumberland Health Center, Gotham Health Clinic East, New York, Interfaith Medical Center, New York Presbyterian Lower Manhattan, and Woodhall Medical Center, and Brooklyn FDNY, Fire Department, EMS Battalions 31, 32, 35, 38, 39, 44, 57, 58, and 59. Big shout out to all those folks. Get these healthcare workers and first responders some good eats and get the revenue flowing back to these local restaurants. You can lift the community up. It's who we are. That's why it's called Brooklyn for Life. So you can find a link on Jeffrey Wright's Twitter or Instagram page, or you can use the hashtag Brooklyn for Life and find out more. They've already raised $178,000 with a goal of getting to a million. So tell your friends, be a helper, check out Brooklyn for Life for a really important way to impact people locally. But we also need to fight at the national level, and that's where Independent Restaurant Coalition comes in. The Independent Restaurant Coalition was formed to save local restaurants affected by COVID-19, but it's founded on the simple belief that there's power to affect legislative change if they unite with one voice. And the IRC was created in the crisis by an independent group of chefs, including our friend Tom Calicchio from episode eight. If you've never heard that episode, go back and check it out. You can find Tom's story. But Tom Calicchio, top chef, has been on the front lines of 
this fight, advocating for restaurants and the entire restaurant industry. Tom and organizations, including the James Beard Foundation, have joined together to create One Voice, and they support all organizations working to support the restaurant community. Together, these small businesses represent 4% of the nation's GDP. And for 11 million people across the country employed by restaurants and hundreds of millions of workers up and down the food supply chain and delivery chain, these small businesses cannot fail. Small local independent restaurants are the backbones of our community, tourism, and redevelopment in every corner of the U.S. They directly employ over 11 million people and indirectly employ hundreds of millions. They contribute $1 trillion to the economy. But with the pandemic, they're closed for business. As of today, up to 7 million people have been laid off, and millions of the suppliers will have their bills unpaid. And the trickle-down effect of the economic damage to local restaurants and small businesses will be devastating. They're the lifeblood of our economy, and they need help. In the financial meltdown of 2008, the federal government bailed out institutions like banks that were, quote, too big to fail, and they paid no attention to the workers who need help the most. Today, in the case of independent restaurants, there are too many to fail. Economic assistance for the independent restaurant industry is one of the most critical investments to bring our economy back. And they've got to give Americans the confidence that we can come out of this. Even more important than opening up sports or anything else is opening up our restaurants. And they're uniquely positioned for quick, efficient distribution of funds to tens of millions of workers up and down the food and supply chain. So, what do you do? Go to saverestaurants.com and you can take action. The Independent Restaurant Coalition is fighting at the national level in ways that will cascade to your community wherever you are. And they have four priorities. One, fix the Paychecks Protection Program by extending the maximum loan amount to three months after restaurants can legally reopen to full capacity, reinstating the $500 million gross revenue cap and increasing the length of time restaurant owners have to repay their loans to 10 years from two years. Number two, launch a restaurant stabilization fund that provides up to $100 billion in grants to independent restaurants that will give them the upfront capital they need to reopen. Number three, create new tax rebates that incentivize employment so restaurants can continue to employ full-time staff and pay rent when business is slow. And number four, ensure business interruption insurance covers COVID-19. Right now, restaurants aren't receiving the benefits they deserve from insurance companies. So go to saverestaurants.com. You can send an email to your officials with one click. You can make a donation. You can spread the word. This is a way to support millions. This is the national level. Jeffrey's crew is the local level. Together, it's an effective one-two punch to help our restaurants and our communities get back on track. Do your part. Give a little back so we can all move forward. Our restaurants are not just a place to get something to eat. They're the foundation of our social interactions. They're the place where we meet our future spouse on a blind date the place we learned how to work, the place we celebrate, the place we escape, the place we connect. Do your part, help the helpers, and be a helper. Serve it up. Bottle red, bottle whites. Whatever kind of mood you're in tonight. And if you got a story to tell or a resource to share, Find us on social media, use the hashtag AngryAmericans and let me know. Don't just be angry, be active. All 
All right. Thank you to all of you out there for the continued support, especially during the pandemic changes. We continue to improvise, adapt, and overcome. I know the sound is not always as great as we want it to be, but we're trying a lot of different tools. We're trying to get people in a lot of different places. And sometimes the Wi-Fi connection sucks or our equipment fails, but we're continuing to push on. So thank you for sticking with us. Thank you for your support. And thank you to a few folks who made this episode happen. Of course, my thanks to my friend Jeffrey Wright. Check out Westworld. It's amazing, especially the new season. It's mind-blowing. And of course, please follow him on Twitter. He drops bombs. He's entertaining. He's amazing. And support Brooklyn for Life. Again, the hashtag is Brooklyn for Life, where you can find the links off Jeffrey's uh, social media. And I'll also post it on mine and on Angry Americans. Big thanks to Mighty Mercy Rich, who continues to power our future from deep inside New York City. She's been incredible, and I'm so thankful for her tenacity and her calm. Creative Chris Rosenthal, he's just a genius holding it down out in Indiana. He continues to bring such great creativity and just keeps making things happen in the most difficult of times. Bill Schultz, also incredible. Thank you so much, Bill, for keeping things moving, keeping us on track. And Bravo Sierra, hooray. Big thanks to Bravo Sierra again for powering all this. In times like this, you find out which companies really matter and which products deliver and which leadership counts. And Bravo Sierra is a company that does that. They're making this episode possible. So please check them out and show them some love. Big thanks also to Rachel Maddow. She had me on the show recently to talk about VA and Department of Defense issues. She's keeping a spotlight on all these issues. And she's been a voice of reason during these tough times. We don't always agree on everything politically, but she's an incredible patriot, and I'm so grateful for her having me on the show and all her tenacity. And I hope she'll join us again on the show sometime soon. If you haven't seen the episode with her, go back and check it out. She talks about fishing, drinking, and all kinds of other cool stuff. Also, just want to send a shout out to all the helpers, especially the frontline healthcare workers, utility workers, everybody who was working on Easter and Passover. Easter and Passover just passed. And many of these heroes were out there on the front lines of the fight against coronavirus. They didn't have a day off. They couldn't be with their families. And to all of you that spent that holiday or those holidays out there, our deepest thanks. We are awed by your courage and eternally grateful for all you do. And I am eternally grateful for all of you who listen. And it's time for Thank a Listener. Every week, I'll thank a few angry Americans for listening. And in the future, it might be you. And it's more likely to be you if you give me a call. We have a hotline, 833-33-ANGRY, 833-33-ANGRY. You're sitting around, you're watching Westworld. After it's over, give me a ring. Let me know what you thought about Jeffrey Wright. Let me know what you thought about this interview. Let me know what you'd like to see in the future. And tell us what's got you angry. Give us a call, and we will make you famous. You can call, tweet, or post on our social, and we will make you famous. I'll make you famous. Go ahead and do it. It only takes a minute. Go ahead and do it. It's better than watching Tiger King or watching another Trump press conference. Go ahead and do it. Seriously, do it. Do it. Do it. All right, and a couple angry Americans that definitely deserve thanks. First up, Emily Steele. Uh, Emily Steele is from North Carolina or D.C., I'm not sure, but she's an Air Force wife and a mother, creative and daughter of a social worker and a mental health therapist, just trying to stay happy always. She's an amazing woman. She wrote, thank you, angry Americans, for keeping me angry because I'm paying attention. Paul Reichoff, I hope you're staying sane in quarantine in New York City and love the last episode with Jake Wood. Thank you, Emily. Getting a lot of great feedback on Jake Wood. If you haven't heard that episode, it's 54. It's the one right before this. He is an amazing leader for Team Rubicon. Check that out. And I want to check out Brian Bergson. Big thanks to Brian M. Bergson in St. Paul, Minnesota. Former soldier, legislator, lobbyist, flack. 
He tweeted, this is a must-listen-to podcast during these trying times. Listen to it now. And, oh, don't forget to keep asking, where is Wilkie? Bergson, you've been awesome. Appreciate you continuing to put the pressure. Use the hashtag, where is Wilkie, folks. Together we can create a bit more noise on this issue and hopefully hold him and Trump and everyone else accountable. I'm also accountable to Stulto Silentium. Stulto Stylentium is uh, tweeting at Brewer underscore Patriot 7 out in Southern California. In a democratic government, elected officials do not have power. They hold power in trust for the people who elected them. That's what uh, Stulto tweeted and also tweeted, just listen to episode 54. That shit was the re-motivation I needed today. Thanks, brother. That was the episode again with Jake Wood. Uh, and as I mentioned, Jake Wood and his whole team at Team Rubicon continue to get after it. They now have 45 COVID-19 response operations underway, 72 more coming online. And so far, the gray shirts of Team Rubicon have completed 37 response operations. They're also deploying volunteers to lead recovery efforts in areas recently struck by tornadoes because tornadoes are still happening. And pretty soon hurricanes will be happening again. And Team Rubicon will be there. Another person who's been there, Chip Robinson. My thanks to Chip Robinson 8 uh, out in Chula Vista, California. He is a husband and dad to Sarah, Caleb, Joshua, Jaden. So big shout out to all the kids, Sarah, Caleb, Joshua, and Jaden. He's daddo to Finn and Hazel. Uh, so hello, Finn and Hazel, and a veteran nonpartisan. Uh, he said, I just saw you on Rachel. Great job. I'm now following you and Angry Americans. I'm a vet and an army brat. My dad's in a VA home in Mount Vernon, Missouri. I will call him tomorrow. Thanks. Uh, do that. Definitely call him. And thank you to all of you who are new to this show. I know many of you found out about it because of Matto this week. Welcome to the Angry Americans community. I hope you'll stick around, subscribe, and share this with your friends. And call your mom, your dad, your significant other. Call somebody who's alone. But reach out and do that. Uh, and I will continue to thank you all. Thank you, Emily, Brian, Stulto, Chip, and everyone else. Please keep the feedback coming. Use that hashtag, Angry Americans, anytime and sound off. I'm grateful to all of you. You are the bright light that guides our future, and you power this community and this country. So I am always grateful to you, and especially to my amazing wife and two boys. Uh, my sound may sound a little bit different. That's because we escaped from New York City for a little bit. I am in a new undisclosed location. Uh, I am still in New York. And I arranged to get a car from my Aunt Angie, who is 102 years old. So I want to thank my Aunt Angie for allowing the family to borrow her Buick. And uh, it's, it's an old-ass Buick, and we've named her Ruby. But Ruby was our trusty steed as we escaped New York City for a bit. Uh, the boys were getting stir-crazy. I had to get them out of there, and we are now a bit north. But also, thanks to my brother Mikey, who managed to get this car on the road and help us make the escape from New York City. Uh, and he's just been holding it down for our whole family. So my thanks to my wife and the boys for continuing to be incredible, continuing to keep spirits up, continuing to lift other people up. I am thankful for them, just as I am always thankful for you, dear listener, for tuning in. Please keep pushing through the fight. Please keep bringing the calm. Please keep bringing the positive attitude to me and to each other. And 
Tell your friends to check this podcast out. If you're on an Apple device, leave the show a quick review. Subscribe now, and you will have it hot and fresh and waiting for you late Thursdays. That's what it's looking like now. It's taking us a little bit later, but they are coming on late Thursday. And I know some folks maybe don't have time to listen to podcasts, so you're listening with others. We also have video. So go to angryamericans.us. If you don't want to listen, maybe you want to share it with the family or you want to share with some friends, we have video for just about every single episode, including this one. You can see Jeffrey Wright's really cool living room in Brooklyn. You can almost see the turtles. But go to angryamericans.us and you can check out that video. Also, I got some more dispatches coming. Now that we're settled in in the undisclosed location, we will have some quick hits coming next week. Uh, I want to try to get previous guests on for quick 15-minute pops about what's happening in the world of coronavirus and how you can help. Uh, So look out for that. Also, we're going to get Righteous Late Night cranking again on my Instagram. We're going to get Ryder and River's Room back up again now that we're settled. Um, But please keep that feedback coming on social media. I see you. I hear you. I'm with you. You can still sign up for our newsletter. You can still get some great Oscar Mike merchandise. And stay tuned, subscribe, and we'll keep this movement growing week by week by week. It's okay to be angry, especially now. And no, you're not alone. Even if you feel like you're alone, you're not. Because we're all a little angry. And that's because we're paying attention. When I get to heaven, I'm going to shake God's hand. Thank him for more blessings than one man can stand. Then I'm going to get a guitar and start a rock and roll band. Check into a swell hotel. Ain't the afterlife grand? And then I'm going to get a cocktail. Vodka and ginger ale. Yeah, I'm going to smoke a cigarette that's nine miles long. The great John Prine dies recently, one of the greatest songwriters and artists of all time. He died from complications related to coronavirus. He wrote his first two songs when he was 14 years old. That's when he wrote Sour Grapes and The Frying Pan. He graduated from high school in 1964 and started his career with the Postal Service as a mailman. And instead of focusing on the monotony of his day job, he used to write songs. But the career delivering mail was cut short when he got drafted into the Army during Vietnam in 1969. And as Vietnam was escalating, Prime was sent to Germany where he served as a mechanical engineer. In an interview with Rolling Stone, he said that his military career largely consisted of drinking beer and pretending to fix trucks. Well, whatever he did, it worked. Prine went on to win two Grammy Awards out of 11 nominations and a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. He was also the first singer-songwriter to read and perform at the Library of Congress. And this is his song. We can all appreciate the days we have, the breath we have, the people we have, the time we have. So raise a glass to John Prine and to all the fallen. The toast we've been putting up in our family and among our friends is to the fallen, to the heroes, to the future. That's the toast, people. Because I'm going to have a cocktail, vodka and ginger ale. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Stay vigilant, America, and stay frosty. I'm going to kiss that pretty girl on the tilt of world. Yeah, this old man is going to town.